0: Hello, this is Future PMC. Right now, we are releasing episodes to the main feed of Radio Free Mercury, our patron-exclusive podcast series that covers the witch for Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it airs. This week, we are releasing our discussion on episode 9. This podcast was originally published on December 7th, 2022. If you want to access the remaining episodes of Radio Free Mercury right now, you'll need to subscribe over on our patreon at patreon.com slash giant at the five dollar or more level besides the witch from mercury we're also releasing twice a month episodes discussing turn a gundam a series that we're calling moon race wireless you can check out one of those episodes on the main feed but the second episode has been released and it is patron exclusive thank you and enjoy the podcast
1: This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am. I'm very excited to talk to you. I'm very. We got back to mecha fights after a, a time in the desert without new mecha fights, without new hand-drawn animation. We're back, baby. And I couldn't be happier. Of course, I'm with me, as always, by my lovely co-host, PMC Trilogy. Yeah, right now I'm
0: holding uh, Steven up so that he can properly get off these fiery shots through the microphone.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I cannot wait to talk about some mechanical designs. Uh, they knocked all three, as far as I'm concerned, out of the park. But before we get there, I have another guest to introduce, Adam Westcott. Adam, welcome back to the podcast. It hasn't been too long since your last appearance.
2: Yeah, it's only been a little bit
1: of time, but I'm definitely happy to be back. It was a lot of fun chatting last time
2: um, about Planet With. So definitely excited to talk about Witch for Mercury, which has been actually pretty interesting, maybe more interesting than I was expecting going into it. Same. I'm not sure if that's an opinion that you share as well or.
0: Yeah, no, I think that I think we're, we're we're pretty high, even if we're you know, I, I think both Stephen and I have misgivings about I mean, the show also has misgivings, of course, about about capitalism business. But like, you know, we're, we're pretty down on it. And so whenever there's a there's an opening where business could be regarded as a, a as a positive tool, we're like looking at that very suspiciously. But otherwise, yeah, like we can definitely talk
2: about that. because mm-hmm. I'm very curious yeah, yeah, as yeah. to how that's going to shake out. I'm still a little skeptical um, but we can talk more about that as we yeah, go on, yeah. maybe.
1: That's basically a good summation of my academic trajectory, having misgivings about capitalism. <laughs> mm. Actually, Adam, I have you know I did pick up some Biscuit Hammer. I wasn't able to acquire the whole set. There was a reprinting recently. There's going to be another one, but I picked up volumes one and two, three and four, and nine and ten. So hopefully by this summer, I'll have acquired the other two, other four volumes and we'll be able to chat about it in the future.
2: Well, that's very exciting.
1: All right, so in that speaking of Mizukami and that Planet With episode, Adam, we did talk a bit about your history with Mecca and your many accomplishments as a critic and writer. But relevant to Radio Free Mercury, you've been writing weekly rundowns of the show, each episode, each week, for Slash Film. How has that been going?
2: I think it's been going well. I mean, first off, I wouldn't say I'm super accomplished. If anything, I'm kind of grateful that a place like Slash Film sort of gave me an outlet to write about this stuff weekly. Um, going into this, I mean, of course, this is probably one of the most loaded fall anime seasons in a while. Like, if this season only had Chainsaw Man and Mob Psycho 100 Season 3, that would already be enough. The fact that on top of that, you have stuff like Do-It-Yourself and Boshi of the Rock and Akiba Maid War, and then Gundam, a new Gundam series, the first in seven years on top of all of that, and the new Bleach is airing, and My Hero Academia and Spy Family is also airing. And, like, all of those shows, like, even the ones that, like, aren't quite as impressive as some of the other ones will still have one or two episodes that just really knock your socks off. Like, the fact that all of that is happening at lunch is pretty wild. And so you might say, well, if when there's all of those choices, why write about Gundam? And I think, actually, it's been really interesting writing about Gundam. Because, I mean, first off, it's an original series. I feel like a lot of these other shows are based on stuff that already exists. I mean, not necessarily something like uh, Do It Yourself, which is an original show, but Do It Yourself is a much kind of calmer series, like it's more about day to day vibes and like the aesthetics and that sort of thing, which for Mercury really is like a show that has a lot of fun getting our audience to speculate, I think. I mean, not to say I don't know how it's going to turn out and it could totally (laughs) fall to pieces. And in fact, Part of me sort of expects it will fall to pieces because I remember like some of the other stuff that Ichiro Okuchi has worked on in the past, like the person who worked on Witch from Mercury. And I feel like at least part of a lot of the shows is like seeing everything spin wildly out of control as part of the fun. Mm. So like, especially considering some of the difficulty I feel like we've seen behind the scenes, like with the fact that this show had to take a break after just airing six episodes. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some serious problems down the line. But I feel like that would also be entertaining to write about. So I don't know. It's just. For me, it's been just really enjoyable each week, sort of poking at all the things this show is doing, most of which I think are actually fairly successful, considering the sort of story it is. And, you know, it's like a huge Utna fan. It's been a lot of fun sort of digging through exactly what this show is doing, even though, of course, I think what it is is ultimately very different because it is much more literal. It's much more invested in being this conventional blockbuster that has you just yell at the end of every episode, like, what just happened? You know, yeah. I I'll I will also say, as a longtime his defender, despite its issues, as someone who sort of had an eye out for Hiroshi Kobayashi in his past projects, I have been really excited to see him work on a big series like Gundam. I think it's a great fit for him. Also, like Rio Ando, who previously did some great work for 86 last year working on the series, it's really cool to see both of them united on this project. I just wish they were in a situation where we could really see, like, them at their best rather than them seemingly frantically trying to put out fires behind the scenes. Mm. But, you know, keeping an eye on all that and seeing how all those pieces link, I think for me, is definitely what I'm getting out of this the
1: most. Yeah, I'm looking forward to eventually writing a history episode on Witch for Mercury when the whole kit and caboodle is done, whenever that will be. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping for a lot more supplemental material to be released, really documenting the potential production hurdles that existed in this production. Yeah. Adam, there's another article that you wrote I really want to shout out. Um, you published it a few weeks ago about Studio Ghibli Films arguing on behalf of their thematic content rather than just aesthetic. The reason why I want to shout that out is, A, it's a great article. B, I've been watching an enormous amount of Ghibli. I've gotten my daughter on the Ghibli train. I probably have had Kiki's Delivery Service in the background on for the last three weeks, probably watching it 15 times. So I've been absorbing a lot of Ghibli, a lot of House Moving Castle, Spirited Away, all the films you'd probably show a almost two-year-old. But I really appreciate that article.
2: Yeah, it's funny because some of those movies are pretty intense. Like, I feel like if you're showing your two-year-old Spirit of the Way, that would be pretty freaky. Um, Have you been showing them, like, I guess... I haven't seen it. There's Isao Takahata's Chie the Brat and, like, some of that other stuff. Mm. I don't know if they have English dubs, but I think it would be cool, like, also to... Because, you know, one of the things I was sort of trying to dig at is there's so much more of Ghibli than just Miyazaki, even though I think Miyazaki is definitely a huge deal. Totally.
1: Um, my I, mean, favorite I probably kind wouldn't show films. her Boris
2: Prince of the Sun either. But,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, I would show her only yesterday because that's one of my favorite Ghibli films. But oh, yeah. um, I don't think she'll vibe with it as much as the whimsical nature of, of course, Miyazaki's um, like standard canon of films. Yeah,
2: definitely. Kiki's Delivery Service I actually haven't seen, but I bet is really hmm. good.
1: Yeah, that's her Favorite. She always shouts out Kiki's. She'll actually rifle through my collection of anime and manga, just fucking up everything. But she'll grab the Kiki. I would grab it right now. It's, it's almost close enough. But I'm too lazy to grab it. She'll grab the G Kids uh, Blu-ray release and brandish it in front of me, or oh, brandish it nice. in front of her, showing it to me and going, "Kiki, Kiki, Kiki." Thank saying, you, G Kids, for your efforts. I don't know <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast right now, but it's great I, that yeah, G Kids. If you're listening up. to this podcast, feel free to reach out. We'd love to do an interview with you. Hell, I would even drive to New York City. I think I think they're located in New York City. I would drive there to interview. If uh... I mean they've
2: been at conventions, they were at Oticon a while ago, so it's not mm. impossible that they might. I mean, who knows? I don't know if the people who were running their panel there are still there, but if they are, by all means.
1: Now I should ask because we didn't really talk about it the last time we had you on, Adam. What's your history with Gundam? Has and you alluded this earlier, but has G-Witch been meeting your expectations for an AU Gundam show?
2: Yeah, so I think that's an interesting question. I'm not necessarily a hardcore Gundam fan. Again, I feel like a lot of my mecha exposure is a lot of the more biomechanical stuff. It's stuff mm-hmm. like Evangelion, Erica 7 um, all of the Gainax shows like uh, Diebuster and Gunbuster and that kind of thing. Gun- uh, Gundam is something I've seen a bit of. So like, for instance, I've read several volumes of the Gundam The Origin manga, going up yeah. to, I think, is it Yasuhiko's, like, specific original contributions to it?
1: Mm. And, like, honestly,
2: like, getting to that point, I was really amazed. It really did feel like you could sort of see this difference between getting off of Tomino's script to, like, this more kind of personal story, and a way I thought that was kind of cool. I've seen all of Turn A, which I think is a masterpiece, and is really good. And I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this, if you haven't read... There's, like, a particular blog on the internet that you, I think you two must be familiar with, where someone... I think called Tsukino Mayu, like Moon's Cocoon, where it's someone who just has all of these great resources and has written like multiple pieces on like the formation of that series. I highly recommend checking that out because there's all kinds of cool tidbits in there.
1: It's funny they mentioned it, Adams. We had literally—I'm not shitting you here—we literally had the same conversation. We are—I am going on a limb here and teasing something for the future, but I'll shut up now oh, I and see. allow and allow you to continue. Right.
2: Um, what else? I've seen all of G Gundam because I'm like a pretty big Yasuhiro Imagawa fan. Hell yeah. And it's a series, I don't know if it's his best, but it does have an ending, which is something I'm thankful for. <laughs> and I think it has enough interesting things going on that probably people don't give it enough credit, even though it definitely has some really weird offensive parts of it. Um, I've seen all of Build Fighters, which I think is... Well, I haven't... I've only really completed the first season of that, which I think is very good. I think Witch from Mercury... It is interesting because in a way it is different from a lot of recent Gundam stuff, especially considering it feels like Gundam always has this, especially recently, it sort of had this difficulty where it feels like it, a lot of it is targeted at these people who grew up watching stuff like the original series, like Zeta or Char's Counterattack or ZZ or that kind of thing. And Witcher Mercury does feel like it's sort of striking out from all that and trying to make a new kind of Gundam for a new audience. Like, I suppose the producer has said that as much, that he had this idea that teenagers think that Gundams for older people, and he wants to make something that's for a younger audience. like Where he sets it in high school, and it's about like kind of cool anime teenagers and their lives and melodrama and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I mean, you can watch it, and there's definitely, like, in terms of the fights, I think there's probably some Build Fighters influence in there. There's stuff like A lot of the political shenanigans that happen behind the scenes feel like they're sort of drip-feeding little bits of older Gundam history into it in a cool way. And also this idea where it's a story that's supposed to introduce younger people to Gundam, but at the same time, we also see the generation of kids in the story themselves discovering what Gundam means and whether Gundam is something that is to be loved or to be feared. Like, I don't know how that's going to turn out, but... I think that's a very clever way of sort of matching the themes to the story that you don't just get from people who don't know what they're doing. I think regardless of what you want to say about the way that this particular team and especially the script writer kind of builds stories around sort of really ridiculous characters doing ridiculous things, the mm-hmm. way so everything clicks together in that way is actually pretty impressive to me. Whether or not it like continues along that path or spins out of control, I have no idea. But if it does spin out of control, I suppose it also wouldn't, like... I mean, there have been plenty of Gundam series in the past that have just completely gone bonkers at the end, so it wouldn't be too surprising.
1: I'll be shocked if that doesn't happen, and I don't really mean that as an insult. It would just be um, not following a, a, a series staple, like going off the rails just a bit, especially in the back half.
2: I mean, even something like I feel like... What's it called? Iron-Blooded Orphans, which I feel like is a series that has some people who really love it, and then some people who despise it, and then maybe a handful of people are kind of in the middle. Like that, you can kind of make an argument about whether it sort of sticks to its guns at the end and lands as this great tragedy, or it just is completely ridiculous and has all kinds of stuff in that that makes no sense. And that's not even getting us stuff like, you know, Seed, Destiny, famously... Or, like, I've heard the Gundam Zero Zero movie, Awakening of the Trailblazer, I think, which apparently has all kinds of weirdly really weird stuff in it with, like, alien metals and that kind of thing. I don't know. It just sounds like the, the, Gund- the Gundam rabbit hole goes pretty far down in terms of just complete nonsense. So...
1: Yeah, we always get a new IBO take each week, which is funny because I haven't seen IBO. PMC has, but we'll have a guest on, the, like, to sing IBO's praises from the rooftops or to denounce IBO. So it's always very humorous. It's um, true. I
2: will say the opening is great. Man with a Mission. Or probably, I guess there's more than one opening. I just remember watching the video with all the Man with a Mission musicians wearing giant wolf heads and seeing along <laughs> the razor flag it's it's pretty good
0: it is very good it, it, it immediately got my attention when i started watching that show i was like ah yes okay this is an op i'm on board it's true and uh, yokiyama's music as well for the show is great
2: i think and actually the, the music for witch mercury is good too i think the standards for gundam are usually quite high
1: yeah totally
0: you know one, th- one thing i want to make just as a while we're putting out our Uh, our pitches for whether or not things are going to go off the rails. It's Mm -hmm. kind of funny. I feel like Gundam wing is the show that was off the rails and then got more buttoned down and comprehensible as it went along to Mm -hmm. its detriment. I think I, I am a pro first half of Gundam wing person. If I had to, you know, pick one over the other, it's so. really
1: like the first eight episodes are <laughs> particularly unhinged.
2: <I laughs> so, mean, you're you're right, because it yeah. is true that, like, in terms of the AU shows, something like Gundam Wing did sort of set things out, right? Like, I guess I haven't seen a lot of the AU Gundam stuff. Like, I've seen a little bit of Gundam Wing, but I haven't seen Gundam Zero Zero. I haven't seen Gundam AGE, which I know a lot of people despise, like, later on in the series. But something like Gundam Wing, like, it does have that earlier part kind of set in the school where it is about, oh, there's these teenagers, but they're secret agents. It's, like, sort of taking... The original Gundam that was about kids but they were sort of like weird awkward kids who did stupid things sometimes and it's like modernizing them so they're cool but also like deeply tortured like kind of making them you know and I guess in a way something like Witch from Mercury is like this more heightened reality in that way in that the characters do embody these different sorts of anime cliches where they have these exaggerated reactions to things instead of behaving in any kind of like not psychological nuance but like sort of behaving like kids I guess I don't really know. but yeah, there are like- again like it does tackle like these more difficult themes involving politics and capitalism and how businesses work and what uh, the military- industrial complex and that kind of thing. So there are like a lot of other things moving around in there.
1: Yeah I feel like a Witch for Mercury has been grounding itself more consistently in characterization than perhaps other Gundam TV shows. And by characterization, I don't mean to say that other Gundams don't focus on the characters because I'd be walking into a meme at that point if I made that declaration. And I honestly don't believe it to be true. But I feel like the character writing and the consistency of the character writing is one of the hallmarks so far of Witch for Mercury.
2: It definitely feels very functional. It's like what every arc is broken up in in two or three episodes. There's someone always ends in the robot duel and each one sort of explores some part of the character. Mm -hmm. Like we sort of see how, and this is something I sort of, put, I guess, into the piece that I worked on for the most recent episode. But earlier we see how Ghoul is someone who just takes what's in front of him, right? Because he thinks he deserves it and sort of is punished for that. We see how Elon is someone who sort of has this idea of Suleta. He's like, oh, well, she must know exactly what it's like to be me because she's in the same situation and he throws his total fit when he realizes, wait, actually, her situation might be a little different. Like, Maybe he doesn't understand me, but that's not right, right? And then this episode, we sort of see how Shadik is someone who thinks that he's sort of above it. But then when it, you get down to it, like, actually, he sort of sees other people and object, as objects in the same way that these other people do. Um, and it sort of lays these things out so cleanly. I think something you can say for these other Gundam plots that are more freeform is maybe they sort of reflect real life a little bit more. Like, what I do love about turn A is the fact, even though the pacing is sort of all over the place because Tavino did it, you still get a sense that, like, because there's so much more space, the characters have a chance to grow and change in kind of unexpectedly naughty ways, maybe? Like, knots as in knots, like, that you tie, I guess. Like, something like a Sochi, for instance, in Turn a, I think is really interesting. There's a whole stretch of that show when I was just really frustrated of her. I was like, why are you spending all your time being so mean to people? Like, stop being cruel. But then she changes again. Like, she sort of keeps shifting throughout the series between being someone who is just very much set on one particular thing who hates people and then all of a sudden she turns around and she's like no actually like I want to be on the same side right and i don't know the impression i'm getting is that witch from mercury is going to be a shorter series rather than a longer one as in like if we're lucky it'll be 26 episodes rather than 52 and part of yeah. me does kind of wish it was more stretched out in that way to sort of give the characters more time in school because it's like a it's a setting that lends itself to that kind of development But if that's not what we get, I guess that's the reality of the industry, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, be careful what you wish for. I hear you, though. That slower pace can definitely be beneficial to a show, but also it could give a show way too much runway and way too much to do.
2: Yeah, like it cuts both ways. I feel like there's definitely like uh, Daisato, for instance, who's a prominent anime writer who's worked in a lot of recent projects. I had this idea he's one of these people, along with other people, who like are really struggling to figure out how to write for shorter shows now. Because in something like Eureka 7, it felt like that series did a pretty good job in terms of pacing out its revelations and character moments and that kind of thing. And you look at a lot of Sato's more recent stuff that's much more compressed, and either he had a lot more help in those earlier series, or like fitting these larger stories in the smaller space is much more challenging for him. Mm-hmm. Or even getting to something like, um, since which Mercury rips so much in Revolutionary Glutenna, uh, I think we've seen over the past couple of years, Kuniko Ikahara, the director, like his shows have been squished in the smaller and smaller packages. And I think seeing the difference between something like Yuri, Yuri Kuma Arashi, Yuri Bearstorm, and Sarazamai, which is the most recent show, just in terms of how they're constructed and like how the characters are driven to do certain things, it feels like he's had to make certain concessions in terms of figuring out how to fit everything he wants in such a tor- short time frame. Mm. So as all these things compress, as the anime industry becomes about putting out these very short one season, like 13 episode seasons rather than longer series, like you sort of see, and especially like even making original shows, like whenever those do come up, as I feel like they're much rarer than they used to be. Telling these kinds of stories concisely in a way that's not total garbage becomes more and more challenging.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping personally for two core. That, that's for two reasons. One is I think witch from mercury will be stronger but also from a content mill perspective uh four cores will tie us down longer than two will um for both those reasons i hope that witch from mercury yeah. has a nice 26 episodes i think the show will be better as a result and we could produce more dynamic content in the future
2: yeah it does kind of feel like we're heading toward a three houses kind of split where there's this mm-hmm. jump between school life and, but you know, I, I say that, but who really knows what's going to happen? It could be that they spend the whole next season in the school as well. It's all just up in the air. So I shouldn't be making predictions because I know that they want us to be doing that. And then they're going to laugh in our faces and say, ha, 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 you thought it would this? I don't think so. You know,
0: I mean, I definitely said much the same thing to Steven either was a few days ago. I, I said, three houses, time skip incoming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> verbatim. It's true.
1: All right, before we jump into the episode proper, P.M.C., so you had a good note, which I didn't realize until like an hour yeah, ago. Yeah, so I,
0: I noticed this when I was watching, you know, so I'm, I'm booting up Crunchyroll Sunday morning, and I, I click on the episode, this is episode, episode 9, uh, More Than a Childhood Friend But Not True Love. And it's like, wait a second, this doesn't seem right, but it's, it says Gundam, so I click on it. And then, of course, the title card is... Uh, if I could take one more step toward you, and I think I saw someone on Twitter say that this was just a mislabeling that that was uh, that this title's from another episode. I, you know, Adam, I know your uh, your write up did use. If I could take one more step toward you, so I feel pretty. Yeah, I was really wondering
2: about it because yeah. so Kim Morrissey, who's a writer at Amonese Network, I respect a lot. She's a reporter, has done a whole bunch of stuff, has talked to all kinds of cool people. I believe, at least from what I remember she, when I read her piece, she used the other title. Um, So I wasn't really sure which way to go. Part of me was thinking I should just use the title. It's on Crunchyroll. But I went to the Witch from Mercury site, and I looked up its list of episode names. I noticed it used the If I Could Take One Step Toward You title. So I thought, if that's what the official source says, I might as well use that one. But I feel like in that kind of case, probably going either way is justified. Like, if you're working in this industry, you just use what they give you. And if they give you that, and it's wrong, I guess you just live with the consequences. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. I was wondering, is this a mistranslation? Did they change the name like in post? Who, who's to say with this kind of show?
0: Right. I mean, that's the thing is that I, 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 that's almost why I'm it up because I'm not bringing it up to be like, haha, I got, you know, so and so. I got, I got Steven. I caught him. It's to say like, well, you know, what, what's going on? I, we don't really yeah. know, but you know, it, it's just sort Very of curious. Unusual. I'd be curious to know too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I will say, my notes could be littered with inaccuracies. <laughs> I wrote these in a fever dream. Uh, my daughter was sick yesterday, and I am amazed that I managed to pump out these notes. So if, if I miss if I make more mistakes than normal, that is the reason, and feel free to call me out on them. Alright, so episode nine. Either more than a childhood friend but not true love, which by the way, I made I shot out a meme real early on in the day because I saw that title. I was like, that's an even title, shot it out through the evangelion uh title card meme generator and no one said uh said which way or you know whatever about it so
2: i mean i think it both titles actually work perfectly well yeah <laughs> it's like more of a childhood friend but not too love and if i could only take a step toward you like those are both kind of classic anime like episode title names yeah um, so you'll don't, you don't miss
1: either way i suppose so after, after you uh, debate the merits of either title, uh, we open with a flashback before Suleta's arrival on Astakasia. Ghoul is dominating the dual circuit, defending his position as groom. Shadik, however, is taking a more cautious approach, monitoring events from the sidelines. He tells Miareen one afternoon, as she's bemoaning her lot in life, that he has no interest in becoming the holder or the rat race that is Astacasia.
0: This little like sneak peek back into what the school was like before suletta's arrival is interesting some of it's just interesting for purely physical reasons like the size of mirin's greenhouse being just like she's just putting the first soil down and we can see you know how far it's come since then uh you know in our in our present moment but of course it's also useful for establishing where was that relationship between the two when they were at school because i mean we know from the previous episode that they had some dealings before like i mean. We don't know exactly when that business proposal that they tried to pitch was written, but you know it might have been around this time. Uh, but it's I, I think it, it's good for establishing what Shadiq's approach is here. He is happy to tread with with soft power. He that like that defines his approach to problem solving.
1: Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting contrast to his peers as we'll talk about a bit later in the episode question in their, have
2: they done a flashback before in this show like the prologue episode I guess you could say is one big flashback but I was wondering if we've seen another instance like this when they've gone back in time in this way
1: I don't think so yeah I'm Unless trying you, to think course, you consider the prologue a flashback which I would argue it's not right
2: so I think it's interesting that this is the first time that we've actually seen them go back this way and kind of show you what the what Astakasi was like before Soleta came um, it has me wondering if they're gonna do that in the future, like especially once we start finding out more about Lady Prospera, right? If flashbacks will become more common. Or if this is more of a one time thing. Like sorta of, they are sort of the script is cheating a little bit by going, oh well, to help you understand exactly what Shadyka is doing, we'll show you like the way he operates and what he looks like when he's not playing this game in the same way, right?
0: I do wonder too about the timekeeping mechanism, because there is no explicit, you know, one year ago, or any sort of time card like that, the the timekeeping mechanism were shown most explicitly in terms of numbers: is how many victories does Ghoul have? What is Ghouls' uh, a dueling record? Which I don't it's know. True. I, I feel rewarded for paying attention to numbers on screen. By by, no, it certainly helped me, you know, uh, acclimate myself to where we were in the timeline. Uh, it was very, I don't know. It's just very interesting that that was the thing that they put up as the as the way we keep time in, in a show where we're all scrambling over each other you know after the whole 21 year uh you know old grievance comment you know that we get we get time given in dueling record
1: yeah i didn't realize it was a flashback at first to be honest i realized about midway through the episode and this is probably as i was like under pressure just very utilitarian trying to write these these summaries but i didn't bump on until i was like no wait ghoul's still playing throw in the woods he is not back on the dueling circuit. Not that much time has passed since the last episode. That was, in fact, a flashback. Because I didn't pick up on the the great pull that you did, PMC, with the greenhouse.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you could say, you could argue it's a failure that they didn't do more to differentiate that scene to help you know, but at the same time, I guess, it makes, it's, it is a good way to cash audience's attention by just suddenly making them go, wait a second. Like, this doesn't quite line up, right? If you want people to be watching the show and looking at what's happening like to just throw them something unfamiliar like that where suddenly it's like oh first flashback this hasn't happened before you're learning about these things like that's a way to sort of catch people's eye i guess
1: yeah and it creates a sense of unreality too where you're questioning what is real and what is not especially in regards to ariel and yeah we, we all thought we knew
0: who Suleta was and and we don't feel so secure in that belief anymore
1: uh, Meereen, in her conversation with Shadiq says, quote, am I company property or something? And I got to say, I know it's like a tired trope, but I do love when a character just says the thing. Like there's something deliciously ironic when a character just blurts out the theme without realizing the importance of their words. Love to see it.
2: That's definitely the witch from Mercury's main technique. They'll have a theme and then you'll have a character say, this is just like this. Or you'll have someone like uh Miri and say, who do you think you are, a king? And her dad says, that's right, I'm a king. It's like, <laughs> well, there, there you go.
1: Yeah, it's very on-the-nose writing. It's very, I mean, Akuchi does this all the time in the first season of Code Yes, It is not a criticism. Most writers that we've interacted with on this podcast do the same thing. It's just uh, fun to point out and fun to see. I do wonder if this realization, which even up until the present, Miri, no doubt, continues to reflect on but she's continuing to reflect on her lot in life will it encourage her to evaluate how she treats her peers or employees like she bristles against the restrictions placed on her will she impose those same restrictions on earth house or the newly acquired r&d divisions of pale and shinsei or is she doomed to follow in her father's footsteps I am, given the writing of the show, I am optimistic she'll be able to break those cycles given just how aware the writing has been about power dynamics up until this point. Um, But I wrote this note before I got to the end when Suleta tells, I mean, when Mirin recommends to Suleta that she use Martin and the rest of Earth House as human shields during the battle. It's not really a complaint. I thought that was a very funny bit. But I do wonder how cognizant Mirin is of how she treats others if she is in fact like replicating the restrictive hierarchy that her father imposes on her with other people around her.
2: I think it really depends on whether the show is going to say, we need just a completely new system that's not cruel and biased, or whether it'll say, all you need to do is refresh the old guard with a new guard and that will fix everything the more time goes on, the more I feel like it might actually go for the latter, depending on how things go, which in some ways would be disappointing. Um, but I also, we'll, we'll have to see exactly how far it goes with it, I guess. And how revolutionary something like the aerial is, like it could be that they try doing it that way, but that just leads to more problems, which frankly I think is realistic. Like, You know, something like um, what a critic, Austin Walker, says about space, right? It's like, you go up to space, you take all your things to to space, you bring all your problems with you, too. I feel like you can't just move everything in a new environment or switch in new people without replicating the old issues if you don't bother to address them. So I don't know if the show is going to go there or not. I feel like it would be best if it did go there because it's a real problem. And I to be frank to be fair to something like Yoshiki Tomino, I think he would actually go there. So I think whether or not he was thinking about this politically, like the way that people behave and replicate these problems is something I think that did occupy him to some degree in terms of taking like toy shows for kids and making them more realistic and what he did with like the early gun stuff. So I'm not sure if you agree or disagree
1: I I agree. I am usually fond of that turn if the tone and style of writing is more realistic. There's a verisimilitude to um, the cyclical nature of these power structures and the fact that these power structures really don't change or disappear mm. um, that I find satisfying. When a show is more fantastical, more romantic, and plays fast and loose with um, how the oppressed are framed, then I kind of rub against it the wrong way. Uh, right, right. Which I've mentioned on previous podcast episodes before. I, I'm, but I, I am optimistic that. Well, okay, I'm neutral, but I'm, I'm hoping that which Mercury will end up in the right spot. I think one thing I'm curious to see
0: is that one uh, something that makes this show maybe different is the how we framed the the Earthians and the Spaceians. I mean, we're using different language, and then we're also giving them a different power dynamic. So that's one thing I'm very curious about because the show has definitely suggested multiple times that there is a lot of inequity on earth, you know, both how they're treated when they're come to space and also how they're treated on earth. And so I'm, I'm, you know, waiting for that to get, uh, involved. And I think that will go a long way towards helping us understand also, you know, how the kids, you know, uh, undo that not because it's, it's one thing to form a business and have the rules changed on you and then fight a duel to change that. But, you know, fight it, the, the thing that they would have to do on Earth is probably start a war. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't just fight a duel to, to, to get a concession. You would re- resort to, you know, full-on martial power.
1: Yeah. Also, I do want to touch upon this because this group of characters is going to factor into this episode pretty significantly. I've seen a lot of chatter about Shadik's entourage of, quote, bad bitches, end quote, they give big Mean Girls energy. I kept looking for like a a noun to to refer to them as, like what, like other than Shadik's entourage. Uh, I, I I come up with some clever ones, or what I think is clever a bit later on in the episode. But I, I'm a big fan of them as delicious villains.
0: Yeah, I, I think okay, I'm st- I don't know. If, oh, go on PMC. I, I'm still thinking of them as the. I, not, I, I don't know. It's been so long since I played Mean Girls for, but I still think of them as the Beauty and the Beast squad because whenever I think of <laughs> like. a a team with all sorts of weird eccentricities. I just go immediately default to a metal gear solid villain team.
2: I don't know if folks follow Feliarchus on Twitter, but something he brought up, I thought was interesting. he sort of talks about the way that this show is pretty good at developing minor characters just by giving them one or two individual details. Mm Hmm. If you look in a case like Earth House especially, like despite the fact that we haven't spent a lot of time with each individual member, you kind of know just enough about each that they sort of differentiate themselves. In the same way, I feel like you don't know as much about Shadik's team, but I think this episode did do a little bit to kind of show, to give each individual member a little bit of extra texture just by giving us like one or two extra details about them. Just sort of through dialogue or through how the characters interact with each other or how they act maybe more stuff about them as well that we have yet to learn or maybe it'll get more of a spotlight but i think something like that especially in a show like this it does have a larger cast of characters where new people are always being introduced like it's it's useful that it's able to very efficiently develop its cast even if it's just in this very pulpy way where they might not necessarily have strong interiority i guess and i guess they don't have to like that that's their Their narrative purpose is to pop up and help Shadik in this moment and to sort of distinguish themselves for all kinds of ways.
0: And also to provide, you know, foils or opponents to already established characters. I I think one of the highlights of this episode was the the uh, Lalique-Renee dynamic.
2: Oh, for (laughs) sure. And like, Lalique has a rival now, and you wonder, like, depending on how this show evolves or how it spreads out, are we going to see more of that? Like, this is our first... Proper Gundam conflict, you could say, in this show, that it is like a little mini war with that spot. I don't know if we'll see more of that in the future. And it could be that we will, and this is just the start, but who knows?
1: Yeah, speaking of small little character moments, I'm really happy with how Witcher Mercury has characterized or spent time to characterize the members of Earth House. They all have their quirky personalities, and they really do get the little moments to shine. A lot of them get a good amount of t- screen time in this episode, too, um, to comedic effect, I think. In the wake of the recently erected barriers enacted against gunned arms and corporation, Earthhouse convenes to vent their frustrations and plan next steps. Mearin, accompanied by Suleta, conferences with Shadik and Sabina Fardin, his purple haired associate and classmate. He proposes a merger. Mearin will remain president of the company, Earthhouse will still handle management and operations. Of course, this means Shadiq will get a cut of the profits and access to the Gundams. Mirin declares that this is all too convenient and plays her remaining trump card. She challenges Shadik to a duel. All right, I know I was down on episode eight. If you did not listen to episode eight, here is the long story short. The framing of Earth House as narrative pawns rubbed me the wrong way and I feel like there was an, like an extra sheen of gumption and romanticization around the creation of Gundarm that just put me to sleep. It's not something I'm interested in watching, so that's why I was a little bit more negative on that episode. But I got to say, episode nine, whatever title you want to use to refer to it as, pulled me right the fuck back in. I love all this corporate backstabbing and one-upmanship. And Mirin's playing to her strengths. She's using the system that her father created, the same system that binds her to an ignominious fate against her foes. And the system is so broken and wrecked by contradictions that it's super easy to exploit. I love it. Underlined. I love it when a plot point serves a narrative and a thematic purpose. That's the good stuff.
0: Yeah, I think this was the first time in the show I've, I've actually been excited about the terms of a duel when I really felt like mm. there was um, sort of a weight between one option or the other. Because all, all the other duels had these terms that were just overblown. They sort of, you know, things were going to be one-sided. Also, here's the other thing, is that Suleta, as it was established during the formation of Gundarm, is not an effective negotiator. She cannot communicate well in the way that these business people do. And Meireen can. You know, that was sort of her, her time to shine. And we see that again now. And now we see this sort of, um, you know, the the alliance of the two working in tandem, which is to say that Meireen can can negotiate the terms and Saleta can fight the battles. And I, I think that this sort of machine uh, makes me excited for the dual format in a way where I wasn't before. Because before... Suleta was never really I mean she was you know coming to it in this emotionally honest way that wasn't you know meeting the structure of the school where it was.
2: I thought it was interesting. What do I say? Um oh I thought it was interesting. I feel like in some other case there'd be some cutaway where we see that Shadiq s- snuck some kind of secret clause into the contract that'll <laughs> give him power over it. We never see that. We never get a point where Mia goes like, look at this or this. All she says is I know you, if you're giving me this contract to sign, you want something out of it for yourself. Like she doesn't even take the time to dig, or maybe she, she probably does actually, because she's mirroring, but she just knows looking at it, that if he wants something from her, even if he says that she'll benefit from it, if he was a person who passed the rule, it can't be for her benefit. So just that she's able to make that call because she knows him. She knows what he's capable of. And maybe he also knows that and knows that she knows. He's just saying, come on, do the easy thing. Don't make, don't make, me like publicly embarrass you in front of everyone because Shadiq for whatever reason has this idea that oh Mirin's just like the same sort of spoiled child I knew when I was a kid and she's just stubborn and she needs someone to show her like what the right thing is to do so of course I mean you know it does seem like a pretty dangerous thing that Mirin is doing but I guess you have people like Sawada or Chuchu or other people who do kind of stand up for her and trust her and we sort of see how that pays off later so
1: PMC, what's the win tweet? Like you're at a Fourth of July like barbecue and like overturns oh. the table. Like this whole thing smacks of gender.
0: Yeah, no, you you nailed it pretty much.
1: That I was I was trying to play with that with this scene with Mierin here, like just overturning the uh, non-existent table and going, like, "This thing is all too convenient, Shadiq. It's all smacks of gender."
2: I should I also mean, say, in a previous episode, did he talk at all? And I, I don't want to talk too much about the earlier episode, but did he talk at all about previous history, writing about economics and fundraising?
1: no no
0: that, because... so that part of it we've we've been talking a lot um to to the <laughs> to the chagrin of some of our listeners comparing you know some of the, the plot points to code Geass, but i don't think we've touched <laughs> on any of the i i, I read this in, in reading your past write-ups that there right. are some other Akuchi works, so you want to fill that in please go ahead
2: well, so I'm not an Akuchi expert so I can't really say, but I do remember from the show Volvrave which has serious problems and like especially hits this point of no return where it just becomes kind of unredeemable after a certain point. Even though I have some friends who actually say the ending is surprisingly good for what it is. There is a particular moment, there's a particular moment in an episode where the characters organize a fundraiser. They're like, "Hey, like we're we made this school in an independent entity." Like, please, people of the galaxy, give us money so that we can fight back against the oppressor. They, they even have a promotional video. Although the promotional video, I guess, is actually uh, much smoother than the one that Solata makes. But I guess even back then, I mean, I also don't know how much the particular director of that show or other staff from that show were thinking of like when they came up with that scene. But I feel like if it shows up here as well, it kind of goes to show that Okuchi is probably interested in, or someone on the team is interested in that kind of stuff, they're thinking. Well, if kids are engaging with things like crowdfunding, how does that work when you have a giant robot in the military and industrial complex? Like, what happens if Gundam's a meme, right? So, I thought it was, that's that's actually one reason, considering Okuchi's always been interested in that, it does have me wondering. You had people who were speculating at the beginning of the show, whether this is a show about... Well, I don't know, taking down capitalism or whatever, irrespective of the fact that this is a show like about selling little plastic toys. On, on one hand, like this show's portrait of the benerit Group and all of its inconsistencies and cruelties is pretty damning, like especially because Okuchi really doesn't write subtle stories; like he really shows you the evil of how this thing operates. But at the same time, he's also like, "Oh, well, what if you could fund robots through crowdfunding? Wouldn't that be so much better?" Right. But that does kind of have me wondering, like, well, what is what does an equitable system look like to the people making this show? I guess like, I don't, I don't really know. I guess we're going to find out. I would like for it to be something like actually more equitable than just replicating older stuff. But we sort of talked a little about this before. I'm kind of curious to see where it's going to come down. And I haven't really decided one way or the other at this moment.
1: Yeah,
0: I think looking towards the extent to which inclusions like crowdfunding will affect the answer as to, you know, what what how do we overcome this injustice and evil that's so clearly laid before us, I'm likewise very curious because, you know, there are so many sort of modern touches that are involved in here. Like, it, I think this Gundam show involves smartphone-adjacent user interfaces in a way that Past shows really ha- sure. Yeah. And, and so now, now, of course, that's just like an interface thing. That's just sort of a familiarity in terms of how you tell the story and that is maybe, maybe less, uh, less implications than something like crowdfunding. But nevertheless, you know, I, I think so much of the social dynamic and obviously the the crowdfunding video from the last episode is, is just such a huge example of that on multiple levels. And uh, it shows up here too. So what it does the dance, but we, geez. sorry, I, I
2: went too far ahead. I want to <laughs> give us a chance to organically get to that moment. No, it's so good I'll, I'll shut up now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Where I fall on that, I will say, um, the show doesn't necessarily need to have a, like an honest, no, it needs to be honest about it, but isn't he like to completely destroy the status quo and I don't know, bring forth some sort of utopian vision that would, feel honestly very insincere and inauthentic what i wanted to do is if it can't move the dial forward i wanted to recognize that for the tragedy is that it is and tomino Mm. is really good about that in his works um one of my problems with the ending of code geass r2 is it really doesn't play up that tragedy It, it tries to play up a tragedy which about a character who personally i bounced off of so um that, that's where I'm at regarding this so if any reader if any listeners are going you know what stephen here is like really uh banging this drum and a lot of when he's critiquing a lot of these shows does he want to see in every mecca show he watches a revolutionary overthrow of the system and a new system put in its place not necessarily though it would be nice to get that once to be honest just because it's um without it kind of shows a dearth of creativity I think um because all we do is get these the tragedy of cyclical cycles of oppression apologies for the redundancy there um, but that's where I'm at, listener. In case you're curious, in case you're yelling at me, and hell, to bring up Andor, like I'm, I'm well aware of how Andor is going to end and like the future of that that universe. And it's all about <laughs> cyclical shit. And you, that stuff is usually played for worse. But again, it all depends on how you fall on it. It usually depends Andor, on the tone. Andor is definitely very interesting in the
2: same way, where it is like this big budget thing that is owned by like the most profitable <laughs> company one of the most profitable entertainment companies in the world and yet does enough curious stuff that has people arguing about like did they sneak this stuff in there and i mean probably they didn't like they knew what they were getting i mean my thought and or that it, it is probably that they said oh let's make like the sopranos and star wars or Deadwood, stuff or even just something like i don't know like a pretty good prestige drama in star wars which they did like i think Andor is pretty good but that's not gundam so we can't talk about that
1: yeah i'll just start listing off amca talking points as i was listening that earlier today uh i I bring up andor with anyone anytime over the course of any given day at this point so (laughs) people are talking to
2: podcast about ozark we're so glad to have (laughs) you here
1: talking about the popular
2: prestige drama ozark sorry okay
1: (laughs) i haven't actually seen ozark Neither have I. My dad loves it. It's like a classic Mr. Steven Hero show. Since Shadik is otherwise occupied, Lauda runs through the pre duel formalities. In an upset, making this a series first, Lauda announces that their duel will be a team battle, 6v6. It seems that Lauda is taking his brother's defeat and public shaming personally. Mirin accepts the conditions, provided that the duel will be transmitted by live streaming outside the Benneret group. She argues that their victory will make for good advertising. Classic Don Draper move there, I, I do, Like I said earlier, I really do appreciate how consistently which Mercury sticks to the bit. We talked about ostacasia being a microcosm of capitalism. That's obvious, and we've said it a bunch. We'll probably still say it again. Everything about this school is framed in corporate terms to the point where it is, it is intentionally satirical, I think. To succeed, students need to start or be a part of successful business ventures. If a student fails, it means they went bankrupt. And the show is explicit about using this corporate terminology. Friendships are more like ventures or corporate mergers. Everything is negotiated in material terms. And it, it makes this environment so stultifying. Like, no wonder Miriam wants out. And her deftly navigating the train by arguing in favor of a live stream on the grounds of advertising is... Chef's kiss, like such a smart move. Like they can't argue with that, because that's what the like they're that's what the system upholds. Of course, she's she's doing the assignment correctly, and they can't go against that. So that's that's the ideology the school stands for.
0: I think it's interesting how this how this move is framed because we're you now we're now getting you know we already got the rule change. Now we're getting the duel setup where once again the circumstances of the duel have been engineered to be unfriendly. Before you know, remember against um, against the Fair Act. It was. We'll go to space. Oh, you need a booster to do that. How are you going to get a booster? Here, it's you need a team. How are you going to get a team? One of the things that's funny here is how much this um, is framed as a personal decision by by Lauda. I I feel like that's like kind of um, uh, highlighted or showcased. Although I definitely still took it just as you know the system protecting itself. Like that's usually my first read for any of this, which is to say we're all going to band together to maintain the Bennett group to maintain you know the big 3 and so that you know i i don't know who made the decision if it was really lauda say if it was really shadiq say or you know maybe one of the parents or something but you know that when push comes to shove the, they're going to circle the wagons
2: I love how childish this, just something like, oh, you thought fighting against one robot was hard. How about six of them? What about that, huh? Like, it's such a just funny escalation in a way that kind of feels like your kids in a playground or something. You're like, I activate my trap cars. Like, oh yeah, I activate my level 500 trap car that destroys your trap. That's not how Yu-Gi-Oh! works. Please bear with me.
1: Meanwhile, um, me, a 34-year-old, is like getting up out of a seat clapping, like, yeah, hell yeah, 6v6. That's what I'm talking about.
2: It's true. Also, I feel like, I mean, I, as someone who has seen the Gundam, has read the Gundam the Origin, and has also seen the Gundam movie trilogy, this isn't necessarily something I'm an, I'm an expert in, but also just the way this is set up, where it is like a group thing. I feel like in the original, like the first Gundam series, you had Amuro in his robot, right? But he also had like one or two other special robots that were helping him out like was that where like the gun tank showed up for instance i'm not sure
0: yeah yeah it's gun cannon gun tank or, or the accompanying yeah
2: so robots. i feel like that we see choo choo show up later and like her own signature robot i felt like it was bringing a little bit of, of that back and i do wonder if we'll see like maybe not all of the characters but a couple of them have little special robots i guess in that same way yeah like what is the lich from mercury's equivalent of the gun tank i want to know it might be choo choo's robot but it could also be something else i don't know
0: there's definitely a Tried and true. Speaking of things that have been consistent through all the Gundams, it is the need to introduce more robots to make more toys. Which, oh, you're, you're right. Yeah, yeah, which was true for first Gundam and true for the most recent Gundams. I mean, you know, if you think about more recent Gundam shows, one of the things that separated some of the AU Gundams, like East Seed or IBO, was that there wasn't just a singular, I mean, or Wing, was that there was not a singular Gundam. Wing had five. I don't know how many Seed has. Uh, you know, IBO had, like I think, like a main three that would constantly get, you know, refreshes and updates and become more and more monstrous as time went on. So, uh, you know, I'm I, legit, I, I really, really thought that they would put Choo Choo in the Fair Act, and we might still get that because she's a sniper, and that thing's a sniper, uh, so.
2: Please, but I also kind of like the idea of Choo Choo just having her old, sort of small-scale robot that just keeps winning all the time, like, that yeah. would also be cool.
0: I think my, I think like- my joke, and I, I made this in, in reply to a Thaliarchus tweet, was I said that Choo Choo should get a new Gundam, it should be called the Wildcat Strike Gundam. <laughs>
1: Yeah, your union boss needs their own <laughs> Oh Sorry, I'm I'm going I'm going back to my fantasy world where Choo is a union boss. Um, so apologies as my mind runs runs rampant with the possibilities of that.
2: That's very good. Thank you for putting this into my head. <laughs> no
1: problem. <laughs> I now Say I'm see, I'm running wild. I just got an email from my <laughs> union rep <laughs> like 20 minutes ago about something going on where I work. I'm like, I'm imagining if I was getting that email from Choo. Now for the t- 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 Terms of the Duel. If Meereen wins, the startup regulations revert back to what they were before, if that is in fact, quote, normal. If Shadik wins, he gets ownership of Gundaram Inc. Aliocta asked, the die is cast. For the second time this episode, and we're only six minutes in, Earth House convenes after a major upset. Things aren't looking good. Not only has Grassley House never lost a team battle, but they don't have enough mobile suits to field a six-person team. Miorin says she'll talk to Belmaria about borrowing the ferrect. But to add insult to injury, they only have two pilots, Suleta and Choo Choo. Lalique, bless her, volunteers. But Miorin abruptly adjourns the meeting. She plans to develop a strategy on her own. Mysteriously, Nika has scurried off somewhere.
0: I already covered this earlier, but it's worth just restating that the fact that, like, Renee so, so much gets in the face of Lalique here and the payoff for it later... Uh, just outstanding. I hope we get more of these bits, too. You know, I'd really mm-hmm. like to see. Renee is already the kind of archetype that gets in your face. But I definitely would like to see similar rivalries form. I, I am I'm hopeful. I am hopeful for more Gundam rivalries, especially if we go to war and things get even more personal.
2: I was really wondering when she says that I thought, is there something I missed in an earlier episode? But then we find out later. It's like, no, actually,
0: no, <laughs> this is just
2: something she didn't even catch. And that might, that might be better. That Leek's just out there living her life. She's just doing totally fine. And then people get mad at her. Like, why do you do this? And she says, I, I was just living my life. What are you doing? It's, that's the high school experience i guess
0: yeah i mean there was the throwaway bit from i think it was from maybe (laughs) last episode or two episodes ago where the the fortune telling character i forget her name was like you're 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 gonna have boy trouble soon and then is like yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's less war in the pocket and more like war out of the out of pocket as my as my students might say my students don't actually say that. that's like one of those teacher things where you pick up on like on a popular phrase that's now five years out of date, like saying something like is lit or something like that. No one actually says it's out of pocket. Yeah,
0: this is the, like the original giant robot FM meme where you keep saying pop off to your students and they're like, Mr. Hero, please stop saying pop off.
1: I know I was shamed. I, you can <laughs> check the records. I haven't used the expression pop off which by the way i think i borrowed or like subliminally subliminally absorbed from austin walker uh into my vocabulary but i haven't used it probably in six months check the tape i feel
2: like i feel like i just started using pop off recently so that's gotta mean it's out of date (laughs) 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 i'm really curious to know what language they're using now though but i'll have to wait for another time We give your students an hominity
1: i guess but even saying that even saying that means you'll never actually know what language they use but saying you're going to like compose, like do a fact finding mission to find the language just means you don't even know the purpose of the language in the first place. We're too old, my friends. Yeah, too until old. TikTok. Well, if not,
2: we'll have to, we'll have to see. I guess this stuff is always evolving.
1: We then cut to speaking of evolving. Let's talk about this evolving relationship. We then cut to Nika talking to Shadik near the outskirts of the campus. Nika informs him of House Earth's intentions. Shadik acknowledges that he didn't want to fight a duel, but refuses to elaborate why. He walks off. Nika looks crestfallen. You can learn a lot about a person from how they treat their peers, especially peers whom the system deems less than. Shadik doesn't refer to Nika by her name. He simply calls her a go-between. As we've said before... Shadik definitely gives off rancid vibes. And they'll rehabilitate his character for me a bit at the end, but still, I'm like, Shadik, my friend, you, your your vibes are rancid, and please get away from me. Thank you.
0: So, earlier in the discussion, you know, we, we talked at length about whether or not there would be a complete upheaval, a complete revolution, or we would see some sort of, you know, a changing of the guard. And Nika sh- strikes me as exactly the person who is going to champion the changing of the guard to what they feel is like the nicest guard they're going to you know they're going to work within the system they're going to even go behind the backs of their friends to get their friends the best deal possible and in some sense this makes it interesting that Nika is working with Shadik because I think Nika then is treating people she views favorably in the way that Shadik say views Mirene, which is that I've already decided what is best and I'm going to go and engineer that future instead of actually believing in my friends or believing in the person that I'm trying to impress upon favorably.
2: I think it's very interesting. I feel like Nika is one of the first friends that Salada makes to Astacasia, right? Like she's sort of one of her first points of contact, even at earth house that she's the person who sort of is doing this behind the scenes. And I feel like in a way it makes sense that you know, behind they sort of set this up so that you see her and you go, oh, well, if she's like, I don't know, like the walkabout character or the school friend character, she would be loyal or she would actually side with them. So it's interesting that all of a sudden she's the first person where you kind of hint in the previous in the previous episode and one before that that there's something going on with her, that she's not always on the same page. And then here it pretty much is revealed outright that she is sort of working or like not necessarily working against them, but is talking like at least at the very least spying on her friends and like reporting what's happening to other people. I mean, at the same time, I guess this is another example of despite the fact that Shadiq seemingly thinks of himself as like, Oh, I'm not like Ghoul, cool, And then I'm not like a jerk. And I'm not necessarily like Elon either. Like I'm not a monster. The way he behaves here. I mean, like you said, Stephen, he does. He treats Nico like a subordinate. He doesn't really seem to value her as a person. You might think otherwise you'll say, Oh, well I'm not, being mean to you but even so like the values that he's been taught he's sort of replicating without really thinking about them
1: i wonder how nika came to work for and with shadiq is it ideological is it practical does shadiq have something over nika is she trying to protect someone i imagine this question will be addressed in some form as we get further on uh, but Okuchi's like, successfully subverted my expectations because I was very warm when, on Nika when she first appeared. Her personality, I really vibed with her personality. I really appreciated just how welcoming she was to Suleta. And, of course, that was very intentional uh, because I was sold a false bill of sales. I mean, Nika could be a very decent person, but also she's working against her friends. That's a big no-no in Stephen Hero's book.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the way that Grassley is framed also is kind of interesting because I feel like you look at some of the other houses where, like, Turk is run by people who are just jerks mostly, and Elon's uh, PL Technologies, right? It seems like the people running that place are pretty sketchy. We know the real Elon, for instance, is like a giant asshole. Um, I feel like Grassley, in a sense, kind of seems more principled, and that the guy who like runs it seems like someone who will usually be like, like take the straight and narrow in meetings and that kind of thing. But at the same time, like that does, I guess, leave them blind in other ways. Um, Like even someone like Shadik, who even looks at his own mentor and he says, Oh, well, I'm not like him. He's just completely against Gundams. I will use Gundams as they serve me. But as we see in this episode, as it continues, like even he has his own blind spots, I guess that are passed on to him.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting to sort of look at what are the themes of the houses and how they approach problems You know, it's a very surface-level comment to make, but it certainly does feel like House Grassley is the like establishment right-wing sort of house in that they are taking this conservative approach. They present themselves as sort of more reasonable, a a stable, guiding voice, but they're committing just as many war crimes as anyone else.
2: And they they go out of their way to shut down debate too. Like it feels like Jeter will work with you if it means they get to trash their enemies. And Peel will like sign up if it means they get to try new interesting things, but Grassley just says no. Like we don't want to do it.
1: Grassley feels like an American company right out of the 1950s, like a military industrial, like part of the military industrial complex. Um, very outwardly conservative, very outwardly patriotic, um, but of course part of that debilitating status quo, nonetheless.
2: Hmm.
1: This scene also got me thinking about the differences between Shadik and Mirian and what motivates them, because it seems Shadik uh, would prefer to play the long game, as opposed to Mirian, who seems to she would rather cut through all the bureaucratic red tape and corporate BS. And I found this interesting because we get some nice exposition on Shadik in the last episode. We learn that he's the beneficiary, beneficiary of the system. He would rather work within the system's limitations to acquire and maintain power and privilege. And I think this makes sense. We learn in that episode that he grew up with nothing, and he had to cut down the competition and claw his way up to get his father's favor. Um, We learn that he was also adopted. We learned that earlier on, but to reiterate in the last episode. This makes him very dangerous. He knows what he can lose. Mirren, on the other hand, was born into privilege. She is privilege incarnate, which means that she doesn't really know what she could lose, which allows her to take these risks in the first place. And this makes her dangerous, but just in a different way. I feel like Mirren is ideologically, ideologically dangerous like she can challenge systems i feel like shadik is could is dangerous in a way that could affect those around him like human lives
2: yeah i guess Mirren is someone who sort of grew up within this cocoon where she spends all her time trying to get out of it but actually she's always been a beneficiary of it which is something that lady prospera says to her a couple episodes ago right well someone like shadik did come from somewhere much smaller he was sort of adopted, right? Yes, it seems like a lot of people in Grassley were. I mean, I guess we don't know entirely how that system works, like how many orphans there are. Like, are all of Shadik's friends here orphans? Or are they just kind of picked from different places? I'm not really sure. Or even just something like, Shadik seems to say, even though I'm an orphan and I've been adopted and I like exist as part of this system, I still have my own ideas and I'm still capable of challenging it. But is he really? I don't. I don't really know. Like, we see here... He, I mean, we see from the epil- from the prologue, he just spends years standing around not really doing anything. Might He might see himself as like doing these things or behind the scenes, but he clearly has something he wants and he's not acting on it and sort of telling himself that he is being more noble for doing so. I don't know. It, it's interesting.
1: I feel like there is another company, a shadowy organization who has yet to be mentioned that is just finding these orphans and selling them to people. I feel like there's an orphan black market which I think would be appropriately on the nose for a show like Witch Mercury. On her way back to her dormitory, Suleta ponders who she could recruit as a supporting pilot. In a scene right out of a romantic comedy, she literally walks into Ghoul. After apologizing profusely, Suleta asks for his help. Dramatically, he tells her his father has forbidden him from dueling. Suleta, acknowledging the love she feels towards her mother, understands and determinedly runs off in search of new allies. This is one of my favorite parts of the episode. The shot of Ghoul's face when Suleta points out that he must love his dad speaks volumes. His back is turned to us, but we can see his profile, and you can see he's very reflective and remorseful at this moment. Presumably, he has spent his life desperate for attention, acceptance, and love from his father that his father will never return. Uh, He will never reciprocate those feelings, and that is heartbreaking. And then you have Suleta chanting, support, support, support. Of course, she's referring to the support pilots they need. But this only emphasizes the lack of support in Ghoul's life. And the writing is in conversation with the shot composition in a really wonderful way. Like even like they're at night, it's at nighttime. Um, so the lights, the sidewalk lights have yet to turn on. And then they do turn on signaling that Ghoul has a new path to walk if only he chooses to walk it. Um, you don't get these shots in all Gundam shows. Like when you can really dissect the visual imagery on screen and the shot composition, I got to really applaud the animators and writers and writers here. It's really well done.
2: I mean, even something like, I mean, the lights turning out on did definitely send it out to me too. It feels like if we talk about, and you know, I can't really say exactly who handled this shot. Um, probably if you go digging through the Anime News network, Encyclopedia or some other database to be able to track down to some degree who worked on it. But I feel like this kind of device where suddenly lights turn on or like the lighting changes, like sort of spilling out, it felt that felt like a moment from Kisniver to me. Like that show is very good at suddenly have light sources turn on and off or like having like cool things happening in the background to illustrate some some sort of thematic point. There's a really cool scene in Kisniver where like one of the characters suddenly recognizes a connection with with another character and suddenly the children from their past dreamlike just sort of run through the background behind them, it, it felt like to some degree the Witch from Mercury hasn't really been able to indulge in these kinds of cinematic moments because it has. It feels like it has to put so many of its resources into in making sure these giant robot fights are an embarrassments, and so they've really had to just cut back on just a lot of the sorts of character moments and the way that they're framed. So I appreciate that, even though it wasn't particularly complicated, it was just a light turning on and off, and like taking the fact that it was evening into account it still felt huge because just the fact that they managed to take the time to do that, it felt like that was an important moment to them and they wanted to make sure they sold it. I wish that we had more moments like that. Like, I feel like this show would be even better if they went out of their way to try to fit in some of these scenes that will work on a more visual level rather than just in terms of dialogue and character. But, you know, I I thought it was definitely very effective.
1: Yeah, Ostakost is a little bit more sterile than I would like it to be. And yeah, there's a thematic reason for that, but I feel like some of these shots and some of the environments could feel a little bit more lived in because it, they are in fact being lived in by human beings. And no matter what system you're laboring under that you would give meaning to those spaces.
2: And even just a couple of episodes ago, I think the scene at the dance, when you had a uh, Peel technology organizing those giant displays that had a different people's faces and that kind of stuff, that was like a very unsubtle, but also kind of visually fun way to demonstrate like the confusion of that moment or who was speaking at any given time and it feels like whenever scenes like that pop up, they're fun, and the people making the show are definitely capable of them. And maybe we saw more of that earlier in the series, but, you know, of course, like, we're at this point, we're nearing the end of the first core, and they're probably just scrambling behind the scenes to make sure everything winds up. So I, I appreciate they're able to pull it out in this case, but...
1: As Sulette is thumbing through her non-existent Rolodex for potential pilots, Shadik talks to Mirin from outside the threshold of the greenhouse, because, of course... Meereen outright tells him that his countenance is off-putting, quote, you say it all with a smile like you're helping me, she says, but in reality, you want me to be the symbol of the company. You only see me as an ornament, end quote. So we're now nine episodes into The Witch from Mercury, and I gotta say, the consistency of the character writing is not only laudable, Guess see what I did there, PMC, a little laud pun? Yeah, yeah, I do. You're not smiling as much as I would hope. Um, But it's not only laudable, but it's remarkable. Characters have clear motivations. They act honestly in respect to their environment and peers. There hasn't been any weird whiplash, and I'm not even talking about Tominoisms here, when a character says or does something idiosyncratic that runs counter to everything we know about them, which I hate to say it is kind of a Gundam staple. That's what PMC was referring to with those first eight episodes, nine episodes, ten episodes of Gundam Wing but not here though. And certainly not with Meereen who only wants one thing liberation. She's not an object and she'll stress that point violently if need be.
2: I think um, you know, going back to Revolutionary Lieutenant for a second, which of course yeah. does not map up perfectly to this show at all. Anthe would never tell anyone that she's an ornament because she knows that. Like that's the way she operates. She goes in this knowing that the system is the way it is and she can't change anything and in fact benefits from it in some ways. I think it is very interesting that mirin is sort of very hyper aware of her situation but fights back against it and just says outright what she thinks it makes a very different dynamic in the same way that Shadik has long hair and i was sort of thinking oh is he like a toga figure going into it and in some ways maybe like he shares some aspects in common but i think what's going on with him is certainly actually very different in the long run the way that this show does borrow from other sources but also just does its own thing completely I think is interesting it, that means that it does simplify some things I think the characters in this show all have less going on than Utna but in terms of being very functional and sort of doing whatever has to be done for the plot to move forward and for the characters sort of satisfyingly click together I think for those most part it's done a pretty good job
1: yeah I will say I agree with your point there Adam there's not as much depth on these characters than I would hope but the consistency is very much appreciated at least for me Suleta runs into Shadiq on his way back from Mirrene's greenhouse. He tells her to talk some sense to her bride. Suleta defends Mirrene. Shadiq drops the proverbial gauntlet and tells her he's not going to hold back. Alia Akta asked.
0: Yeah, this is really kind of, I think, the defining moment of, of what the episode is about and, like, why, I guess, why Shadiq's approach is, is bad. Because it needs to be pointed out very explicitly. It needs to be pointed out because he's not, he's not the bully like Ghoul was. He's not whatever ethically compromised situation is going on with Alon or Alon's variations. He is a much friendlier guy on the surface, but what is the problem? The problem is that he is not a partner. He is someone who wants to own you. Even if things aren't terrible for you, that's still not a real, you know, a real dynamic that treats everyone as full people. You know, the Nika scene is a perfect, perfectly good example of how he treats people. So, uh, you know, Shadik Shadiq wants the keys to the car. He wants to drive always.
2: And I guess in a sense, it's like even in a way, it's even worse than if he was just someone who just blindly took this stuff for himself. Because you get the sense when he talks of mirroring, it isn't like he's scheming like "ah ha ha, I shall crush her and I will make her mine" or something. He's like, no, you'll understand. She's going to live stream this. She's going to embarrass herself in front of everyone. Like, ask her friend, I don't want this, She so you need to tell her just to submit to me, right? Like, she's doing her a favor. And I think in his brain, he's like, oh, I'm right. But also, like, he doesn't even think for a moment that he could lose. And I guess in a sense, it is funny, because I feel like Soleta also doesn't really think she can lose. Like, anytime she's in the aerial, she goes, well, the is really strong, I believe in the aerial, so I'll win. So you sort of see these two different people, who are both extremely stubborn, and both believe that they have, like, the way to win this duel and you know like so what is doing it for Mirene, and we see here that shadiq is really just doing it for himself like i think he th- thinks he's doing it for Mirene, and maybe in his heart of hearts i guess he is but he's doing it in a way where he's not giving her any kind of choice in the matter or any kind of respect really
1: that got me thinking i know i'm guilty of making memes on the spot during our record or coming up with ideas for memes but has anyone done the simpsons do it for her meme just from the perspective of Suleta to Mirrene, like with a bunch of p- pictures of I would Mirian be surprised if
0: that hasn't been done. I feel like that, that always, yeah, I could be wrong though. That's like it's probably a low one. hanging fruit.
2: I think at this point, Shadik probably has like his entire dorm room is just filled with Mirrene do it for her things <laughs> <laughs> just all over the place. <laughs> Nightmare scenario. Oh my
1: God. I would love to see Shadik's dorm. I'm sure it's very sparsely decorated with very fancy products. Like you're like a designer coffee coffee maker or something like that
2: yeah or it's like toga's room where there's just like a giant bed with curtains and he's just constantly i mean i don't, I don't really know I, mean, I don't know if that's going to come up but
1: over the phone belmaria tells mirine that she could only send four zowerts pale's proprietary grunt suits unfortunately the fair act is still undergoing repairs or so she says after she hangs up master alan who seems to be acting as an intermediary between pale's executive council and belmaria tells her that by helping them you'd better bring back results. Meanwhile, Grassley, Grassley House's Teen Girl Squad, that's a Homestar reference for all you kids out there, prepares for the upcoming duel. The customary pre-battle chatter commences. Notably, we get a good look at the Michaelis Shadiq's suit before both parties take the field. Before we talk about the Michaelis, I forgot to add this to my notes. The scene when they reveal who is fighting for Earth House hysterical because they do it in a way that's like here are the fighters boom 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 but of course half the fighters are really unsure of themselves and like why the fuck am I here in the first place
0: it's very good Team Earth is just solidly delivering consistent comedy beats throughout all of this until you know they get the final shot
2: historically very important for Gundam
0: just having characters
2: who deliver very funny jokes if not having funny animals in the like we didn't see the goat this episode right I feel like the goat's a quintessentially Gundam character
0: I'm surprised we I mean, didn't get the goat in a cockpit in this episode
2: yeah that'll be very good that could be coming in the future we'll have to see maybe they'll like some people will come to round up a Gundam and they open it up and the goat's inside instead of a pilot they're like oh no they gave us the
0: slip yeah. we'll <laughs> or, or it'll be like a fleeing Astacasia. there will be the end of the uh, the season and they have to take the goat with them
1: I'm, that's what I was about to add I hope they do take whenever Astacasia gets blown to bits I hope that the goat is safely secured in a transport vehicle
2: very important. Keeping an eye out for that goat. Though goats are also very tough; they can defend themselves. But even True.
1: so, Not in space though I don't think this this goat can. Love to be proven wrong.
2: You're right. Space is very dangerous, even for goats.
1: Yeah, that's why the goat population is minimal in space. You only have like we only see like three or four goats occasionally. Yeah, space goat 20, coast, coast can, to coast. They can, yeah,
2: <laughs> they can climb up mountains, but they can't climb up space. But no,
1: space goat coast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. If we're making
0: extremely 20-year-old memes, then I'll I'll contribute. There's my contribution. Cheerleader,
2: what's-her-face, so-and-so. And And the ugly one. Sorry, someone, someone had to actually say it. I probably missed a name or two.
1: Uh, the Michaelis rules. Am I alone in this? I love this design. I just in my notes it just says I usually have more detailed notes, but this is just yo the Michaelis rules because I think it does.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna call it the Michaelis. I'm gonna borrow Michaelis. what I think is the original pronunciation. I, it, look, you can go either way. There's really I'm not I'm not here to tell you that's correct or anything. I, I think it's don't Greek know. And origin. I think you're right. Anyway, so, since
2: you're oh, since you're the giant robot experts here, I feel like looking at it, I felt like it was a little simpler than some of the earlier robots we've seen. Like, something like the Darabalde has many more moving parts, or something like the Gundam Fairact has all kinds of cool, extendable, morphing things. But this one I was sort of struck, like, it has that giant arm, but even that can only really detach itself. Like, it doesn't really float around in the same way. Like, what do you, what do you agree, or, like, what do you say that adds to the appeal, or is it something where you feel like it has some deeper secret we haven't seen, or is, like, that kind of utilitarianism, is that, like, the grassly aesthetic?
0: I think I think for the most part I'm agreeing with it takes. So it certainly is focused on that that big arm cannon, like it's definitely kind of where where it all lives and, and is tied together. Uh, the color scheme reminds me a lot of the um, the early color scheme for the original Gundam Elfrith, the one from the prologue, the, the sort of yeah. muted uh, lilac color. Like a lot of, I think there was a lot of the, the the mobile suit coloring lived in that area in the prologue. And then the other thing I would say too is that the face visor. Um, Kind of gives me like a little bit of like, uh, like, uh, Gion vibes uh, to to pull upon the, um, you know, the suit that Makuve uses in the, the original sh- show. Does he use it in the movie trilogy or the original? Okay. So if you haven't Definitely watched it remember, the movie trilogy. Unfortunately. Okay.
2: It does. It also kind of looks like, I mean, um, Lady Prospera's mask, right? Like the eyes are in a similar pattern, but that's probably just a coincidence. Mm
0: hmm.
1: It's less insectoid than the Beggar Bow, which it is an iteration of. I don't know how I feel about that just yet. It is very efficient. I like, Adam, you refer to it as very utilitarian, because I feel like each of the three uh, mobile suits that are, or I guess Gundam too, that are paired with. Uh, the three major boys. I feel like they represent something about their personality. Um, Ghoul's mech is very like bulky, um, very muscular, very brawny. Like, uh, Ghoul's never going to be the brains of the operation. We talked about with the Ferect, it stays at a distance from everyone else, just like Elan did and snipes from afar. This mech, the Michaelis, I feel like... I think it's harder to pin down. It is very... I feel like um, Shadik is very put together. He's very fashionable. I think that applies to this design. It's very efficient. But it is also very, like, there's something very chilling about it. It's like, like I, I feel like it can play a mean game of laser tag if you catch my drift. Like, I feel like he's just shooting suckers, like, nonstop um, with its, like, arm cannons. I feel like it, it's it's like a killing machine. And yeah. um, that might also reflect something about Grassley, too. I do like that idea of utilitarianism. So I feel like this thing gets the job done.
2: I guess he also, the fact he works with the group too, like with the other two, they really do just have to carry the entire fight on their own. And I guess to some degree like probably Shadik's robot is like the most powerful one in this scenario. But it does kind of feel like he's orchestrating this like it's about, it's a six versus one in his mind, I think, rather than a one versus one fight.
1: The battle begins. Miren shouts orders and provides tactical assistance from a safe vantage point choo choo enthusiastically provides covering fire from the rear we're gonna talk about this later gotta say choo choo real mvp of the entire show at this point man she her contributions to this battle were magnificent real uh any team would be lifted if choo choo were a member of it let's talk about choo choo's mech for a minute like we talked a bit, because this is a design we've seen before, but this one has some slight iterations to it. Like this jobber has so much personality. It's her own, as I said to look it up, and it's it's called a Demi Trainer, and it's equipped with a long-distance beam rifle. A lot of people online, shout-outs to Russell, <laughs> who have compared it to the Scope Dog from Bottoms, which I think is an apt comparison. I haven't seen Bottoms myself, but I am aware of the design. I, I feel like both the designs are very understated but are very endearing. They have a lot of personality to them. I think the designers are also having fun subverting audience expectations after Choo Choo's punch, because you might think she's piloting, she'd be piloting something bulkier with maybe close quarters combat in mind, something like the Delanza, for example, a ghoul's mech. Um, but even so, don't let that fool you, because like I mentioned, Choo Choo puts up a tenacious fight in this thing.
0: Yeah, I think Choo Choo as well also necessarily is going to pull in sort of... Very utilitarian looks in terms of like labor, like the the earthen tones kind of give you a sense of like this could have been this could be like a mining robot or something like that. Yep. So I feel like that's definitely a lot of where she draws from.
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I agree that I mean I'm I've seen I think half of Bottoms. There's definitely like a bunch of scope dog energy to this, even though it's just like a slightly adjusted version of the regular training robot. I guess I mean it does make sense for them, like Choo Choo, like you said, there's a mining thing there's a fact that because she comes from like a more rough and tumble environment that her special robots like a slightly more customized version of the regular training robot and also her sort of fighting on the same ground as all of her peers like she isn't the kind of person who go for the big special machine she customized it a little bit but even so she's still her point is like oh i'll start with like the basic materials and use them to get the job done because She's, like, well-trained enough in this stuff that she can do that. She doesn't just have to rely on these really flashy devices.
1: And lastly, we get uh, the Teen Girl Squad. They they each have uh, what's referred to as a beggar pentis, P-E-N-T-E-S, I'll go with. Um, A lot of people have been talking about and I think this is a good comparison, I'm not going to take credit for it. This is the problem with a sh- watching a show like which Mercury and podcasting about it is like I subliminally take in people's tweets and just regurgitate them on the pod without even realizing it sometimes, but people online have referred to like this mech as having a very inquisitorial vibe to it, like very medieval. It's got the cross shield, it's also got the almost knight-like sabers. Um, so paired with the shield it makes it look like a knight. It's very intimidating. It's got the it's got a nice dark color scheme dark purple and red with a touch of like black in the middle it's it's a cool design i I like it 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 is very intimidating it's it's very unique perhaps one of the most unique mechs we've seen yet at least in my opinion
0: yeah i mean this one very much descends from the one that the ace uh the ace cathedral pilot used in the prologue right that was called the beggar bow and this is the beggar Penties. And so you know, and it has the antidote. It has the anti Gundam technology. It's got the claw feet. We see one of the claw feet rip off uh, one of the. I think it's Martin's head. Rest in peace, Martin. Uh, <laughs> you know, when it when it opens the battle, which I love. I, I love that the, the the touch of doing stuff with your feet and the sort of the unnatural animalistic look. I think it's like very funny that the 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 mech that is designed to counter Gundam has such non-human or animalistic features when they are alleging that Gundam is not not appropriate for but use by humans or it is anti-human in some way there's a real point to that uh, to me
2: no I think that's that seems very sound to me based on where things go and considering what we've seen so far and also you know that I it's fun that the giant robot takedowns in this show continue to be so extremely violent even though, like, we haven't seen anyone get killed yet, or anyone really be injured too badly, just the fact that they're just, oh, let's tear off their arm, let's stab one right through the head, right? It's pretty incredible how nasty it gets.
0: Yeah, it it, it really is incredible that we haven't had some sort of accident yet. You know, I mean, I think we got very close to a lawn for getting uh getting roasted but i guess it, you know it, it didn't happen uh, but we know that we know that mechs kill we we all watch the prologue episode uh we know that choo-choo kills because we've never seen that girl she punched again so <laughs> i'm sure things are going to get bloody and quick because the violence is there it's we know it we see it every episode
1: yeah sorry i was thinking about what happened to that girl she's dead
0: we we're never seeing her again
1: <laughs> r.i.p rest in pieces I guess this fight rules. It's, in that, it's not worth it in podcast form to go beat by beat, but if you haven't seen it for whatever reason and you're listening to this podcast, make sure you do because it is a magnificent display of hand-drawn animation. Um, it's the best yet by far. I kind of snoozed a bit on some of the earlier fights, but I was at the edge of my seat. I would have loved to see this, like watch this fight with a group of people on the couch or even like in a movie theater because people would be hooting and hollering with some of these kills.
2: The attention to scale is interesting. Like, I wish I had talked about this more in the piece that I wrote, but it felt like the way it tracks each, I mean, it has this big kind of ruined environment that they're fighting in and the way it tracks each individually while they're all flying around. They're shooting each other through the buildings or like going up and down the buildings. It just feels like they put a lot of thought into how that would all be choreographed and how they interact with each other it's not just like, oh, here are people punching each other in a three-dimensional space. It really does feel like they're using the environment to fight each other in a way that's pretty cool.
1: I heard it on Twitter from one of my mutuals, and if you're listening to this mutual, I apologize, I forget who you are, but they compared it to a colony drop, and they mentioned on Twitter that they can't get that image out of their head, and now I can't either. Um, Perhaps that suggests there has been a colony drop in this timeline, which would make sense, just considering how devastated Earth allegedly is, and we haven't really seen much of Earth firsthand. But people were, you know, all these characters in House Earth are orphans, and we've heard just how like destroyed the infrastructure is on Earth. In the initial in the initial stages of the battle, House Grassley makes quick work of their opponents, dispatching four suits with ease. Ghoul watches the live stream from his campsite when he gets a call from his father, who has made arrangements for his withdrawal from Ostacassia.
0: I feel like we already kind of said this when talking about you know the the imagery and shot composition in the in the previous Ghoul scene, but I'm I'm glad that we're we're here. I'm glad that we're here at this point where it feels like Ghoul is going to make a choice because I feel like this lays the groundwork. For him to show up somewhere unexpectedly to do the classic anime bit of you know I have you on the ropes, but then suddenly you're saved by Ghoul, and I, I I'm I'm thrilled and I can't wait.
1: Yeah, can I do I a was, heat temperature oh, sorry, back real on. quick? Ghoul best boy, PMC best boy. Uh, oh, that's a hard question. I yeah, I think so. That right, that's a begrudging yes adam best boy and you feel he's free done to too many to bad cup, right? things in the past
2: i feel like after yeah. he was so mean to me Irene, for so long it's going to take him doing something really radical for me to come back around to him i mean i will say after this at this scene in the episode i was really wondering if he was going to come back at the last moment and be sort of the thing that saves I mean i'm glad that didn't happen because it sets this up for an even more dramatic moment later on but it is it it adds such insult to injury right that he gives an explanation like, oh, no, my dad's told me to stay put. I can't defy his orders. And then his dad just calls him up and says, hey, Gull, just so you know, I think you're the stupidest little kid in the whole world, and I don't trust you at all, and you just better do what I say. It's like, he keeps hoping, like, oh, maybe he'll reward my diligence, but every time he just disappointed, it never pays out for him. Um, you know, he's certainly, based on his actions in the beginning, really do you kind of have to do this kind of assassination to him, I guess, to make him remotely likable. And I guess it does speak to the way the writing does work in this show that they just do torture him so extensively after he loses in the first couple episodes. Like they really put him through the ringer to bring you around on him. I think otherwise it would have made no sense at all. And even maybe depending on how things turn out, it might not make any sense, but I think that they've really sort of destroyed his life in the past several episodes goes some distance to helping you at least understand the pain he might be feeling, even if you think, oh, he is still kind of a scumbag. Um, I mean, I do feel somewhat sympathetic to him at this point, just because of everything that's happened to him, and also because we see is it like his brother or his cousin in this episode who's sort of taken point, his brother, on the duels? He feels like he just lacks any of Ghoul's sense of honor, really, based on the way he behaves to the point where even the other characters were more ingrained in the system notice it
0: so many so many screen caps of harrow looking on disapprovingly at, at lauda
1: it's
2: true and they're they're right to do so like he's not being very sporting
1: yeah i think i'm warmest on ghoul alan 4 is morally uh, like unobjectively the better person um but i feel like i think at least but I feel a little less I know his archetype doesn't really engender the same amount of sympathy or enthusiasm for me than Ghoul does because yeah. I think Ghoul's and he's,
2: re- and he's dead. So it's right. like yeah. what are
1: he supposed to
2: do? Obliterated. Yep.
1: Both that coochie show, like who the fuck knows?
2: Yeah. I mean it it could do something to them later. I it, I wouldn't be surprised, like you interview someone like that and you do something like that to him in like such a nasty way. Like of course they're gonna do something like, Guess what? Plot twist. I don't really know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time for a Gundam show or a, or a Mecha anything to, I don't know, put someone's brain in a mech. It's happened tons of times.
2: Put his brain in Choo Choo's gun and they become <laughs> buddy cops or best friends or something. I don't know.
1: When I posed the question, I wasn't actually thinking of Elan, like the prototypical Elan, Elan 1, Master Elan. I was, I'm still thinking in my mind when I reference the three of them, I still think of Elan 4. I mean, we don't even talk about Elan number 1
2: yeah um he's just not worth bringing up he's a piece of crap who cares about him he can go die in a fire for now until i do like a multi-episode redemption arc for him where they have him like run over multiple times choo-choo steps on him he falls into a giant fire pit all of his friends are taken away <laughs> maybe at that point i'll be like okay i see what you're doing a coochie fine you've said so i'll like come around on him I'll
1: Turns but out he, he's, he's actually fu- funneling so far. Turns out he's actually funneling weapons to the revolutionary movement on Earth. He's he's a friend to the Earthians.
2: I mean if he does, you can say you called it now that he was secretly there behind the scenes. I mean who who really knows?
1: Yeah, talk about an upset. Also, speaking of upsets, Suleta and Chuchu, the two remaining members of Earth House, put up a dogged fight against their opponents. Unfortunately, Chuchu is knocked out after a, like a, a hard-fought fight, leaving only Suleta. Shadik gives Suleta a final chance to back out. Suleta refuses and metaphorically stands by and with Mirin. The final stage of the battle begins. The Grassley girls surround Suleta and disable the aerial's bits using an anti-gun format protection i'm just reading the subtitles here the antidotes what they refer to in the episode now on her own Suleta struggles i bumped on a bit of dialogue um, that i thought was interesting maybe a little foreboding it's probably a big nothing burger though um, that Suleta commits to seeing this duel through on her own not for the sake of mirine but mirine's company she says i'll quote the script here or the translation of the script quote but this time i want to give it a try for the sake of the company Miss Meereen made for us, end quote. Now, of course, she could be speaking ironically. She name drops Meereen all the t- time, so we know she has feelings towards Meereen. It's probably just an incidental bit of meaningless dialogue, but I did bump on it because the phrasing there was interesting. You would think in this climactic moment, and she does name drop Meereen a bit later, um, you would think in this moment she would mention her bride. She would mention Meereen by name, not Meereen's company.
0: I feel like it was, this might be just like a struggle on word choice because she can't say everyone because everyone at this point refers to her talking to her bits, I guess. And then I think she did want to reflect though, she can't say Earth House because is Meireen really a part of Earth House? So I feel like they wanted to go for something that um, referred to the group that she's trying to support. And, yeah. and this was just kind of like the best option. You know, I could definitely imagine a bunch of writers sitting around being like, Oh my God, what do we do with this?
2: Just before this, there's a scene where Shadiq Shadiq says something, which again is like another piece of very in your face, which from Mercury writing, which is like, I killed your family and you're responsible for this. Like just putting the found family thing out there. Like, Oh, so what a, has like, because she has her mother, but I guess she hasn't had that many other friends, and Earth House and and are like her first real support system, and then Shadik says, and they've all been destroyed because you wouldn't do what I said, right? So I, I feel like the company thing does kind of tie into that, that for Soleta, she's someone who, I mean, besides her friendship and relationship with Mirian, it is like everyone in this little group who stands up for her, who she sees as important, and who she feels this greater responsibility toward. I mean, in the same way, I guess it is important that Sawada so is someone whose first impulse is to make these connections. Like for all these other people, even for someone like Miri, maybe they will create these systems for themselves. Like their impulse is to accumulate power on their own. But Sawada so- uh, is someone who puts a lot of value in these connections because she didn't have them for so long. Like for anyone who's like not her robot or her mom, and so she, these things do matter a lot to her. I'm, i mean i don't know how this is going to pay off later like i'm guessing that for maximum trauma they're gonna do something even worse that might separate her from her group or do all kinds of other bonkers things but this is sort of what's being set up that she has these ties that are very important to her
1: i think those are both very good reads yeah reaching deep within herself I actually had trouble with these notes. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? So I wrote, reaching deep into herself, tapping into something primordial, she reestablishes her connection with the Ariel. Reinvigorated, she proceeds to lay the proverbial smackdown on her grassly opponents. Shadik manages to cut off one of the Ariel's legs. Then, towering over her, he almost lands the finishing blow, but is headshotted by Choo Choo from her still-functioning suit. The way the action is tied together, like I mean, we've
0: already accomplished this action scene, but I also want to compliment just the way it foreshadows things, the way the Earth team is still clearly involved. You know, Till calls up Lalik to get the ball rolling. We know their suits, you know, their weapons are disabled. It's almost like sort of there's like a legal logic to it. They told us their weapons are disabled, but what if? What if they picked up the one suit that didn't have its weapon disabled and, you know, you, you sort of get that energy going on in the background. Uh, and then the other, I mean, the other thing to call out, just to uh, you know, because I feel like it's such a iconic Gundam shot, is the the one tear rolling down Prospera's cheek. I don't know if you <laughs> yeah. have, if you have a take about that. I don't think. I think my, if I, if I you had made me write down an answer, I would say she is crying a tear of joy to see uh, the battle that she lost in the prologue, one that the antidote was defeated
1: by Gundam, right. Plus, I think there's a. Lo- she's looking at her like twelve daughters. With all, the, yeah. all the bits floating around.
2: I mean, that's the worst case scenario, right? Is that there is a little child inside every single little bit? Oh God.
1: Um, and that tier probably has child number five thousand twenty-six in it. Uh,
2: I mean, I think it did seem a little ominous to me that we do know Lady Prospera hates this current system run by the Benark group, and she's probably right to do so, but we also know that she will likely destroy Suata's little family the first time she has a chance if it means accomplishing what she wants. So the fact that um, the powerful super weapon that Suwada has is an even more outrageous, undefeatable super weapon that basically has no counters is maybe not something we should be happy about. Yeah, I'm very I'm very curious to see how this is gonna play out. Because on one hand, it could be that Prospera is someone who mostly has good intentions, despite the fact that she may have done awful things to create the Ariel. But she could also be a villain of the same caliber as anyone in the Venerate group. Like, we don't really... They sort of have yet to really drop that hammer. We can only really guess. My read on her is that it is kind of more complicated. That, like you said, like, she is someone... As far as we know, who has experienced loss in the past, and she sort of sheds a tear in this moment because she's managed a small victory in that way. And I guess you can be, she can be proud of that or happy of that. But the implications, like what it means for other people in this show who are not Soleta or not Lady Prospera, I think it's right to be kind of nervous about this.
1: Prospera gives off big, the last. Like, the final boss of a Final Fantasy game. Like, you have the nominal villain, which I guess, let's just say, is Delling. You defeat him, the evil king. And then, meanwhile, Prospera transforms into some sort of, like, the evil incarnate, like, this abomination that you have to defeat later on. So, like, Delling is the penultimate boss. You have your eyes on the prize the entire time. You think it's Delling, but then the rug is pulled out from under you. And then, look at Prospera has now turned into, like, some kind of monstrous dragon with ten heads. Yeah, I
2: mean, the way that this stuff is set up, who really knows? And this isn't even getting into the whole Tempest thing. Like, I actually bought a copy of the Tempest a little while ago to go through and take notes, and I haven't done that yet. But I am very curious whether they actually did work any of that stuff into this show, or if it is just a naming thing that's supposed to clue you in this thing. Oh, it's a sort of magical wizard and their aerial guardian spirit, and that's just supposed to make you think of that. Or even if, I mean, my ridiculous idea is that maybe we could see other headcannons in the future. Or, sorry, not head cannons. my brain mixed up. If we could see other Shakespeare references in the future, like if we have a Lady Macbeth show up, for instance, or if we have some other kind of thing appear, like that could be kind of cool. Um, only because of this sort of outrageous, melodramatic kind of story, there's all kinds of ways you could bring some of those different elements in. They frankly don't have to do that. It might be kind of silly if they do, but it had have me wondering if like, in the future... If we've seen this already, if there's something else that's buried that they're waiting to spring on us, it might be kind of
1: similar. Yeah, Prospero would make a good Lady Macbeth. Delling would make a good Claudius.
2: I I, I should also say, there is this moment in the fight when you realize that when Suleta is fighting, the reason that she's so confident is she's never fighting by herself. She's always fighting in a group. That as far as she's concerned, every single one of her bits is its own competent. And you really do get the sense that, like, when you see her fighting with all the bits, you say, well, she's not fighting by herself. Everyone else is fighting with her. But you realize, no, like, they all are actually pursuing their own battles. Like, it's a lot of off on one side, blowing up robots. And then her bits on the other side, blowing up robots. Like, they're sort of splitting things up in that way. Which is actually, frankly, kind of terrifying. That you s- it's able to divide itself. It's almost like a whole army, except it's just a single Gundam. Yeah, I don't know if that's... Is that something that we've really seen from an earlier Gundam series like in this sense because I feel like you have plenty that like oh this robot has a giant laser beam this one has some kind of supernatural almost supernatural power that lets it do all kinds of impossible things but the idea of a Gundam that can almost sort of clone itself or has this capacity or can sort of be in many places at once um, I don't know if there's been something like this probably, probably there has been but in terms of like a hero Gundam or like the one for a main series that has this capability I'm not sure
0: Yeah, I'd be really curious. I think, you know, and maybe to take it or put it in more technical terms, it's almost like, you know, whereas all of the other uh, bits or drone-based Gundams were very centralized, Ariel feels decentralized in a way, like it's sort of operating in a peer-to-peer thing. And I, I put it on that terms also because we have been told frequently throughout the show that the problem with Gundam technology is the data storm that overwhelms pilots. And if the bits are instead talking to each other, and not overwhelming the pilot, that would be you know the solution to the problem. But of course, you chewed up how many children in the process.
2: Yeah, like we don't know what mm-hmm. how much like I guess we also don't know like exactly how this thing was made, but you can guess that it took a lot of there there's something that stops them from making more. Yeah. Or where like you ask what if this is a proof of concept, what would they have to do to make more of them? Um it's kind of scary to think about. But uh, another thing I will say, going back to the use of space, the shot where Choo Choo's laser bullet or blast just comes from way outside of the battlefield and there's like the zoom out or the zoom in I guess where you see it fly over and blow um, Shadik's robot's little head plate off I thought was really cool that that sort of considered that there's a tracking shot that like follows a laser beam as it does that. It sort of goes to show how they conceptualize the fight and how they thought how all this stuff is sort of set up and how it moves and that it then jumps over to sort of, you first kind of see um, the butt of Choo Choo, like the front of Choo Choo's gun in focus, and then it zooms in and you see Choo Choo's face like that. The way that was handled was very good, I think, for the most part.
1: That's an excellent point, Adam. I'm about to derail that, so I'm about to make another meme. Has anyone done the NFL Day like uh, football music for the headshot from Choo Choo. You know the one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, I know. Gonna... I mean, I feel like it's almost inevitable. Did,
0: did someone did someone already do that with um, with the Mercury thing? Because someone did that very recently, I thought. Maybe it was a different I mean, show. Play
2: of the game,
0: right? Yeah, that, the, the NFL films.
1: Last time I saw it on my timeline is when Austin did it when Obi-Wan eats it in episode three. He's riding that whatever the fuck and the cannon hits the side of the mountain. God. Very good. Never, never gets old, that insertion, uh, that music insertion to almost anything. Yeah. Adorably. After winning the duel, Suleta gets out of the cockpit and does a little song and dance celebrating the aerial. I'll pause here. Gentlemen, you want to chime in?
0: Well, I, I need to point out, okay, normally I wouldn't hose you like this over the notes, but I have to point out that you wrote, uh, you spelled Fortnite, F-O-R-T-N-I-G-H-T, <laughs> Which just seems appropriate for this podcast.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely very appropriate.
2: Gundam. It can fly. It can dance. Aerial. Well, I, I am a little bummed out the way that it's spelled out in English. Like, the you know, the Japanese it all rhymes, I guess. Like, Toberu so so-and-so, Ariel-ru and it all kind of works. And I guess for the English version, it doesn't really like, they don't line up in that way. I don't know if if there was like an English dove or something, they rework it. So it'll actually rhyme. Or if you just lean into how ridiculous it is, I guess you can sort of do it either way. But I like that. It's like sort of purposely, it's like a silly dance, but also a rhyme that doesn't really work and is very forced. And yet it becomes a meme somehow. It's like, congratulations, like Saleta and company, you've turned like a possibly mass marketable weapon of death into a viral hit that's now going to spread Outside of the Benarick group, because this has been live streamed. Like, that's kind of a nightmare, actually, when you think about it. Like, if we're talking about Gundam as an idea, like, this is. they Even if they said, well, we want to repurpose Gundam to use it as medical technology, we don't want it to be a weapon of war, this would feel like it would actually push the message, like, hey, guess what? This machine just destroyed everything else around it. Isn't it so cool? Invest in Gundam today it feels like despite their best efforts this is what they're going to be known for like surgically dismantling several powerful robots where everyone could see
0: yeah as much as it's it's a success for the company it definitely runs counter to the mission statement in the in the episode eight their choice
1: I was trying to think of other times when a battle has been live streaming Gundam because I feel like you could draw some interesting connections. This happens in first Gundam, which is what I was thinking of outside of side six, when we see Char and Lala watching the battle um, around going on around the space colony. I'm curious. There must be other instances. They're not coming to mind, but usually there's a lot of meaning in that a lot of meaning about war and the spectacle of war. I don't think that's really baked into this scene, but it's interesting nonetheless.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, it makes sense. I mean, Again, I can't speak to other people in the project, but it feels like technology is something that Akuchi, the writer, has been interested in in the past. That is a show like what you said, it thinks, well, what if the drone technology from earlier Gundam shows was decentralized and how would that affect it? It's a series that live streams Gundam battles and asks, well, how would this affect stuff? What would happen if this went viral? If you had a promotional video that went viral? Like, I'm not sure if it's going to go anywhere interesting, but at least the people who are making the show are thinking about how this stuff changes stuff. Like, they went further than just Let's make a modern Gundam where the characters are all stylish high schoolers. They say, well, what if they lived in like the modern world dealing with the sorts of problems we face every day and like using technology that was not simply imagined back in the 70s and 80s, but more reflects like the sort of stuff we see now? Like if anything, I mean, even today, when you look at like police forces making it legal to murder, protest, murder people of robots and that kind of stuff, or like designing robot dogs, when I mean, you think of how that might play out in the Gundam World. Like, we sort of seen that in earlier episodes. We're sort of using these giant machines to get rid of protesters on Earth. But there's all kinds of ways that this tech can be abused, I think, to oppress or hurt people. If anything, I feel like drones are probably an even more effective way of, like, monitoring people, killing people on the streets. Like, this stuff is so dangerous. So we'll have to see how it plays out or whether it gets considered for the future, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that's something that Gundam Wing introduces. Well, not introduces, but I guess introduce, introduces as a plot beat, this idea mm. of drone warfare, but absolutely does nothing with it. And I will say, even nine episodes in, I feel like there's more thematic meat on the bones of Witch for Mercury than Gundam Wing. I think I could say that unequivocally. So I'm very curious. I hope they, they take this in interesting directions and have something to say about drone warfare and technology and how they're all interconnected in some really pernicious ways. And even if it does completely, like, all the pieces, I feel like even that might be interesting and what
2: it says about where the people making it are coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, if they gave, if they go all the way up to, well, what does this mean? And then step back and go, ha ha, just kidding. Like, I think that does still tell you something about what the project is doing or what the people who made it thought about it, or even about just the larger anime industry as a whole. Like, what its priorities are, like, what kinds of shows get greenlit as originals, and that kind of thing. Um, so it would be nice if it works out, but if it doesn't, I feel like there's still plenty of cool stuff to extract from it. Like, nothing good that makes you happy about anything. But, if anything, I feel like the failures of this team are never failures that are boring to watch. So...
1: In the aftermath of the battle, views of Gundarm's promotional video skyrocket. The company is officially founded in the celebratory atmosphere. suletta apologizes to, to the Ariel for putting her in harm's way and causing her damage. Shadik pledges not to get in Meereen's way. As he's about to leave, he mentions that he should have dueled for her hand in marriage ages ago. Maybe that way you'd have let me in, he adds. Ghoul's still best boy in Stephen Hero's book, but I did feel a twinge of emotion from Shadik's submission. I don't want to I don't want them to be together, not by any stretch of the imagination. But time passing, the regrets of yesteryear, that stuff always gets me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely this is that's a scene about regrets that sort of caps, you know, Shadik learning the lesson. But it definitely left me like immediately now hungry for the future because I feel like we have we have accomplished the structure. Suleta has now altered each you know each of the scions of the three houses, and 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 you know we we don't have necessarily a clear way forward uh, at this point for what we're gonna see. So I feel like the future is wide open and I'm just sort of um, I don't know, yeah. chomping for it's Sunday there's going to be
2: a drop of some kind I think like, in this kind of series, right, there'll be some kind of horribly traumatic event that just changes everything completely and we don't know what that's going to be yet, which has me nervous, but it also has me wondering like, well, what guns haven't been fired yet? Like, does this involve Nika? Is it um, the original Elon finally getting involved and still out of learning about that? Is it us learning something about Lady Prospera, or going ahaha like uh, you thought the Ariel was the Ariel, but it was actually this other kind of Ariel? Or there's another Ariel that's been here this whole time? Or this story actually takes place 500 years before you thought it takes place, or something or something completely bonkers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I will say I think it's very funny that this episode ends with Mirren like metaphorically castrating <laughs> Shadiq. <laughs> by cutting off the tomato. Yeah. The green tomato that hasn't ripened yet. Um, that was pretty amusing. But also just this idea that Meereen's moving forward. That she takes a moment to consider and she says, Well, I could do that, but actually, no. Let's do this instead. So I guess it is important for her that she's seemingly... I mean, I don't know if it will stick. It could very well be the story ends with, I don't know, like Meereen together with Shadiq and Suweta together with Elon's ghost or something that's Elon rather than Elon, or we don't talk about Elon here, which would be, I mean, you know, I think the best way, at least to me to end the show would be with Soleta being married to every single other person in this school. That seems to me like the only real honest way to go about it, but I, I don't know if we'll get that because this is Gundam and it's a like massive media property that usually doesn't take risks like this. So we'll, we'll have to see.
1: That's, that sounds like a really strange version of instrumentality, like the end of Ava, except instead of being a bunch of Rays, it's just a bunch of Sulettas, Um, I mean, that would be sad, but just
2: like Suleta in like this giant uh, clubhouse that includes everyone, and it's Suleta like living out all of her ridiculous high school fantasies, where she's like, today we're doing a cultural festival or something. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she hasn't had a chance to do those things. I, I do kind of wonder, maybe that'll be it. Like, we'll see some kind of school cl- cliche like that like you've already had a dance so it probably can't be that but i don't know what other like cliches of japanese high schools we haven't gotten to do they have a beach in
0: ostacasia
2: oh, there could not. be there could be a test of courage or something mm. there could be uh i don't know help me out here what, what is
0: hot springs it, yeah
2: i mean it could, it's like how an Aquarian evil they have a what's it called it's like a beach episode but it turns out the beach episode is also a hot spring episode because there are hot springs <laughs> like hidden at the beach they can pull something like that
1: you got hot springs in my beach episode i feel like that's a meme all right but i am done making memes for the time oh last one i feel like *Fire Emblem three houses changing the cover heart with the three major characters of which mercury is low-hanging fruit. I'd, I'd be surprised if people haven't done that yet that feels like something I did, I did, pretty obvious. i did a cursory google search a minute ago and nothing came up so i would love uh, to wrong
2: maybe when the show if the show does do a time yeah. skip which it might
1: not but if it does then maybe we'll see that as my closing thought for this episode really liked it favorite episode so far i'm not just saying that episode is so negative on the last episode i really enjoyed this episode a lot of good character beats also the action whips no mecha fight in the show has been as good as it is in episode nine love to see max coordinate with one another loved all the new designs. And the character work is really good. Also, Witch for Mercury is really good with visual signifiers, like the last bit Adam talked about with the tomato. Um, Gundam AU, Atomino is really good with this as well, Um, symbolism and imagery on screen. I will say other Gundam AU shows usually aren't as thoughtful with its imagery, so I'm happy to see Witch for Mercury actually consider symbolism and motifs and consider how to use those effectively. Even though they're very obvious symbols, I don't think that makes them less effective.
2: Yeah, even though they're very obvious symbols, I don't think that makes it less effective is definitely a metaphor for which a Mercury is a whole, I think. Like, there are times when it'll take kind of easy shots, and go, oh, of course you'll do that. But, I mean, they work. Like, mostly it kind of pays off. I, mean, I definitely like this episode a good amount. I think they're still working as hard as they can to keep as entertaining as possible. And so far, it's been paid. it's been paying off. I don't know... Exactly. You know, this isn't a coochie ridden show that's clearly made on a crunch. Um, I don't know how it's gonna pay out. Like even if this season wraps up and is done relatively well, like even if they're skipping winter, that's still not a lot of time to get ahead. So it could be that things will be even worse if this show comes back in the spring. Um, which it probably will, since I'm guessing Like the thing of someone like Gundam, right, is they have all these merchandising deals, they have their schedule lined up, it's probably more challenging for them to make any greater changes once it's all go. So, I don't know how that's going to go, but fingers crossed, this show continues to be pretty, at least pretty good, and I can keep writing nice things about it, and not be mean. I mean, I'll try to be mean if I have to be, but
1: so far I don't have to be too much. All right. PMC, do you have any final words? I do not want to cut you off there. No, I am I think I already gave my piece. All right, Adam. Promote yourself and the excellent work you do.
2: Oh, yeah. Um. How, okay, so you can find me on Twitter at W-E-N-D-E-G-O, Indigo, so long as Twitter is functioning and hasn't turned into a hell pit. I'm kind of surprised. I feel like a couple of weeks ago, everyone was saying, oh, Twitter is dead, it's gone. And I think the dream of Twitter is dead, whatever that dream was, like I think that dream was a nightmare. But that nightmare is now gone. So been replaced with even worse nightmare. So I don't know how that's going to go. But you can keep an eye on what I say over there. You can follow the pieces I write over there. I write stuff for Slash Film, um, and also for Crunchyroll sometimes. Um, I have a co-host as well under Pig. I write about weird niche games there sometimes. I'm running this feature called RPG Maker Dungeon where I write about RPG Maker games. So Lots of like weird obscure stuff. Like uh, I wrote a little thing about Nefeshul which is this very important Japanese indie RPG that is very janky, but was also pretty influential and sort of came up with the idea for Demon Souls based on early Kingsfield several years before Demon Souls actually came out. Hmm. Um, so if you're curious about that stuff, definitely check that out if you care too. Also, I do a podcast with a friend called Double AA. It's me and my friend Alex Loop, who's a sort of local Maryland comics adjacent guy who does a lot of cool stuff. We did an episode on Xenoblade Chronicles three. If you're in a giant robot stuff where we talk a bunch about that, but we've also done episodes about chainsaw man, Tatsuki Fujimoto's look back monster and some other stuff. And also talking about stuff like uh, local Maryland comic stuff, like small press expo and the DC zine fest and that kind of thing. So if any of those things interest you, then by all means, feel free to check that out if you care to. I think it's on Spotify if you want to look for it.
1: Awesome. Did you enjoy Xenoblade uh, Chronicles 3?
2: I haven't finished it yet, which is really embarrassing. My friend actually has finished it, because he's like one of those guys who finishes everything he starts. Um, but I've really enjoyed what I've played. What I will say is that these games are so long, and even though I'm always really impressed that Monolith does such a great job, like fleshing out these worlds and coming up with all kinds of cool ideas, I do always feel like the mechanisms they designed to be in that world can never really support the size of that world. So I love, for instance, the fact that there's this whole desert in the world of Xenoblade Chronicles 3 you can find that's not really connected to the main story, per se, but you can just stumble across because they wanted it to be there. But at the same time, when you go through that desert and you find, like, a treasure chest with a bunch of coins in it, and you're like, congratulations, you found coins. I always think, well, I can't spend the coins in anything. Like, I have so much money at this point, it's useless. Mm. So it does kind of feel like uh, they need to still figure out If you're making these big complex settings, how to line everything up so that you still feel like you're discovering new things when you're exploring the world rather than just kind of doing the same thing again and again that you did before. I mean, I guess there's a DLC coming out for it. I am kind of interested to see if they'll continue to tune it and do it and kind of tweak it a bit, or if they're just focusing on this mysterious thing we don't don't know too much about. But, you know, for sure, I think it is cool considering how many Japanese role playing games these days really de emphasize having really elaborate stage cutscenes, I think it's pretty neat that they put so much effort into sort of blocking out the individual giant robot duels in Xenoblade 3, and that they just really thought about how to individually stage each sequence and have, like, really thematically interesting stuff happening. Because, like, not every game does that. Even something like Persona games, which feel so much... They feel like they're the games everyone are stealing from now. Like, stuff like Fire Emblem Three Houses just nakedly will model its different individual magical signs off of the tarot from persona for instance even then it feels like those games have have developed a very stylish interface and art design but do not even really try to have compelling animated cutscenes. so i'm glad that xenoblade 3 is out there fighting a good fight even though their game even though that fight is like maybe not very like sort of financially wasteful i guess where they're spending a whole lot of money An art that sort of feels kind of outdated and that they can't sort of hopefully they can't really compete with like these larger companies but they're doing it and personally speaking I think it's really cool that they keep investing in like making the absolute coolest 3D robot fights they can within that framework
1: good to hear it's on my I'll probably never get to it I'm not interested in any of the other Xenoblade Chronicles games except the Wii U one but I might check out 3 if I ever get time it might
2: be worth if you want a taste of it, just watching the big robot fight in the very first chapter, because it's like divided into a couple of chapters and each chapter ends up like this giant flashy duel. But if you want to sort of see some of that, it might be worth checking out some of those scenes to see if that sort of works for you, because I don't really think there's any other game being made right now that chases that specific fantasy in the way that Xenoblade does. In terms of having these very creative battles that play out fully in cutscenes,
1: good to hear. Uh, PMC hit him with our plugs. So, of course, you've been listening
0: to an episode of Radio Free Mercury, which is our patron exclusive coverage of Mobile Suit Gundam: The Witch from Mercury from week to week. If you are listening to it on our Patreon, uh, thank you, thank you for your support. Uh, I want to remind you, of course, that you know you there is these, there is the patron exclusive Discord available through our Patreon. Uh, as well as the simulator episodes where we give mecha anime or give mecha video games the same treatment that we give mecha anime. We just recently put out our first episode on Front Mission, the uh, production history of the first Front Mission game and the first uh, remakes we've been playing. Steven and I have been playing uh, Front Mission first remake recently and uh, you know enjoying it. And we'll be coming up with another episode in the simulator series on that soon. Of course, if you want to support us in other ways besides going to patreon.com slash FM, you can also write nice things about our main feed and give us some reviews over on iTunes and Spotify. It would be very much appreciated. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag band Fretzel, for the music we use.
1: And as my final note, imagine if you would, if, if Choo Choo it was the year 2003 and Choo Choo was playing Halo, she'd be dominating the LAN parties.
2: No, you're right. It's true. She'd do such a good job. I I do have one more thing I want to say, if that's okay. That was a great note to end on. I just wanted to say, and feel free to rearrange this in the episode as you like, I guess. Um, (coughs) When you look at the current state of anime journalism right now, there's a lot of people who are doing really good work, but compared to some other publications, it is relatively thin. Like You don't have that many places are doing this kind of work. You have Anime News Network. You have, I guess, Country World News does some stuff. You have Anime Herald, which is out there. You have Anime Feminist. You have a couple of these websites. But it feels like a lot of the people who are doing the work are pretty grassroots. And I feel like for this medium to have any kind of viability, you need people on the ground who are like covering this stuff. So, I mean, if you're listening to this, if you're a Patreon supporter, I guess you already know this, and that's why you're subscribed to this. But I think one of the best ways... To ensure this continues to grow and that you have people who can like write stuff about this or talk about this is to do the work to support people in their community. You look out there, you see people who want to talk about this stuff, who want to explore this stuff in a more critical, down to earth way than you typically see from some of those websites. You might feel as if they have to abide by these rules of what's profitable or what sells. Um, you really should be reaching out to people like this podcast, right? Like doing what you can to, give these people support so they can continue to cover this stuff. Cause like, do you necessarily, like, you know, people all do their best. People all websites do the best they can. But do you necessarily know that they'll have people like the expertise of these people here? I don't know. Like this group, like they're, they're used to talking about this stuff. Like not every place can go out of its way to hire like a mecha expert. Like they're lucky to just have someone who knows what anime is like to, Oh, here's someone who watched Cow- cowboy bebop. Like that's fine. But how about like, oh, this person can distinguish like individual seasons of Gundam AU. Like not everyone can do that. So definitely when you can, if you're able, taking the time to extend that hand of support to groups like this I think is really important. So thanks a lot to people listening to this for taking the time to do that and for sort of allowing this to continue to exist and not simply die out. Because if it does die out and we're just stuck with like this tiny handful of sites putting in the bare minimum resources to support themselves, I mean that's kind of a scary reality and it's one we almost live in um so please like I know what it's like like I don't have a lot to support myself either but just we all need to do do what we can I guess to make sure this stuff survives so that's all